On the Empire Podcast this week, we have the most glorious quartet this side of the Phantasm series as we talk to All Is Lost director JC Chandor, American Hustle director David O. Russell, and Anchorman 2 director Adam McKay, and his producer Judd Apatow. All that, plus the usual movie news and nonsense. You cannot say fairer than that. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the last regular Empire Podcast of the Empire Pod year. Aww. It is, of course, the last before Santa squeezes his fat ass down that chimney. And joining me for the podcast are the jolliest bunch of assholes this side of the nuthouse. First up is our Queen of the Geeks, a lady who insists that every time a bell rings, a talking dragon gets its wings. It's Helen O'Hara. <laughs> That's true. It is true. And as we as we speak, uh, the How to Train Your Dragon 2 trailer went online this morning and I was once again struck by the injustice of a world that has not yet provided me with my very own toothless. It is a shame, isn't it? It's awful. Toothless, of course, I imagine, describes most of the eligible bachelors in your hometown. Am I right? Oh! Dude, you're from Northern Ireland as well. Yeah, but you're north and I'm south, so, you know, there's a bit of a divide there. Yeah, north's better. Uh, what? You've sure. got, like, the Giant's Causeway. We've got a... Uh, uh, it's like the Burger Good King. Friday Agreement all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. Let's reach hands across the Great Divide. Oh. No, let's not do that. Let's not. Uh, next up, you just heard him as a man who became the editor of the Empire Podcast. Weird story. After he disturbed the last editor of the Empire podcast when he was on his roof. Then he fell off the roof and died. And the magic of editing the Empire podcast passed on to you, didn't it, Ali Pump? That's exactly what happened. Have you ever seen Martin Shaw in Santa Claus 3? I, uh, regret... No. The Escape Clause. I... No. No. He plays Jack Frost. Yeah, yeah, no. You need to see it. It's no. because of those movies that Tim Allen was uh, inducted into the Disney Hall of Fame. I kid you not. It was not necessarily for its Toy Story work. Those movies made a lot of money, and I think they were grateful. And I'm sure they're beloved by some people, but no one I know. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's the end story. of I'm my... I'm already uh, thinking, Santa doesn't actually die in the, in the Santa Claus. He just He's just put out of action for a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, he's put on disability benefit and then he, he can't get down the chimney. And it's not that they don't want him to do it. It's just that he kind of, he's just not fit for purpose anymore. So he makes choice. Well, he yeah. does, he do, you don't see him again, do you? No. In the first one, certainly you don't see him again. He dies? Yeah, he pretty much That's does die. That's very dark. It's really dark. Is it? Does he die? Yeah. James? I don't think so. I, I think I think he just goes somewhere magical and enjoys himself. Oh, Maybe Bermuda. Okay. Don't I worry, just, kid. Santa's still alive. I just realised I introduced you there without actually introducing you. So I will introduce you now. You just heard him. He's making his debut on the Empire podcast proper. It's our West Coast editor, a twinkling Christmas spirit who's flown here all the way from LA and is currently getting over his monster's jet lag by walking around the rug barefoot and making fists with his toes. I'm sure nothing bad will happen after that, though. Isn't that right, James White? Come out to the pod. We'll get together, have a few laughs. I'm so tired. <laughs> hello, Chris. Hello, hello. Uh, A.K.A. Jaime Blanco. Indeed. Welcome. Thank you very much. Are you much. jet lagged? Uh, yes. I didn't think I was. I thought I'd beaten it when I first got here because I've been here for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And then I was up most of last night because my brain went, let's be awake. And I hate it. Perfect preparation for the pod. Okay. Uh, let's start with your questions. You've been sent them into Twitter all week long. First one's from at Top Film Tip. Uh, when and why did movie credits start being relocated from the beginning of films to after the end of films? Well, this is, a, this is a question with a very long and complicated answer. Yes. You'll be glad to know. Good. First of all, there was no one single thing that happened. And there are films going back into the sort of 1940s that had the credits at the end. Citizen Kane. Chris? Chris hey! Hey! You're sleeping with your eyes open Second again. question is from... <laughs> at, 
Oh, you hadn't finished, sorry. sorry. Almost, I'll get there. I'll try and make it quick. So there were films like Citizen Kane, Fantasia, that had the uh, credits at the end rather than the beginning. Uh, it only became kind of general in the late 70s. Now, one thing that's credited for this is George Lucas, who, who wanted to put the credits at the end for Star Wars um, and uh, Empire Strikes Back as well. Uh, so he's generally kind of credited with it, but it was already happening more and more. And I think it, the reason seems to be kind of tied into TV. In the 50s, they put the credits at the beginning to emphasise, give it a sense of occasion and say how big these things were. But as the industry kind of got a bit more, uh, the studio system broke down and the unions became more important, then they started demanding that everybody be credited. And that got too long to put it all at the front. So it started going at the end as well. So there's kind of various different uh, forces acting on it that made credits longer and longer and longer and then it made more sense to put them at the end. Absolutely. Should we put them at the front? I'd say through seven minutes of credits before watching The Avengers 2. It'd probably be like 15 not? for some Then the movies. whole film would be a post-credit sting. <gasps> if you didn't put credits at the end, you wouldn't get the joke joke at the end of Jurassic Park where it says, Dinosaur Supervisor, Phil Tippett, you had one job, Phil! <laughs> <laughs> one job! Do you know that uh, Gravity had an even better job title than that? It had an Earth supervisor. Like, wow, how powerful wow. is he? In the credits to The Heat, this is all discovered on the detritus factory that is the internet. Gina, she's played by a person called Jessica Schifrin. Gina's <laughs> boobs are played by Jessica Schifrin's boobs. That's amazing. That is amazing. I would have thought that would have gone without saying. They don't, they don't get enough credit, breasts. They don't, do they? <laughs> they don't. They actually don't. If you're if you're a pair of breasts and you're listening to the podcast and you'd like some credit, do write in. Or, you know, just turn up. We'll be happy to see you. Anyway, um, I really like the credits. Um, I don't know what's Monty going Python, on here. Anything Monty Python's got great credits. Anything Monty Python, anything Sucker Abrahamson Sucker. Tracy Chandor is someone who's got very interesting credits. Uh, at the end of Margin Call, for example, there's a there's a shout out to a whole group of people uh, entitled the Jeremy Irons Fees and Miracle Team, which is a, a great name for a band. You should write that down. Uh, and it's also uh, it's a team that basically helped Jeremy Irons get his visa in time to make the make the film. He wasn't going to be able to be in the film though because his visa had run out, oh. and they worked miracles with his visa. So there Hooray. you go. That's a good one. Um, to give you some examples of the Zaz. Uh, Wheelhouse Airplane has a couple Author of A Tale of Two Cities Charles Dickens Yes that's what I was talking about And the other one is of course Generally in charge of a lot of things Mike Fennell mm. He is good There was Was it Hot Shots That had a recipe for brownies In the credits I think it was either Hot Shots or Naked Gun Which I've got yeah. a feeling We'll be talking about Very very soon Alrighty um, But yeah I, th- I When I read this question First from Top Film Tip I thought he was talking About the practice And this is A fairly recent practice Of movies Beginning with Just the title of the movie mm. And then having All the credits at the end That directed by And so, so on and so forth Obviously Star Wars Does that But I've you know, I remember for example Lethal Weapon 2 Starting off with a guy um, With that the credits smashing together Die Hard 2 started the same way it was kind of very much a late 80s thing and now it, now most movies just don't even start they don't even have the name of the film come up yeah, they, some, they just some start some completely skip the name I think Batman Begins and maybe Van Helsing yeah. had the name at the end I think it, it made some sort of sense in both those cases where they were trying to set something well, up all and the start Chris a Nolan, franchise all the Chris Nolan yeah. Batman films starting that way um, but, it, uh, but yeah I mean to be honest you know what you're watching right I mean you're in the cinema deliberately yeah not necessarily so, What's <laughs> I once I once paid to see <clears throat> tits. Uh, I once paid to see tits. I once went to see I th- I can't no, I can't remember the name of the film, but I went to see a film at, at uh, my local cinema when I was a, a kid, and 
it was only 10 or 15 minutes in that I realised it wasn't a film I'd paid to see and I was actually watching Hulk Hogan and Christopher Lloyd <laughs> in Suburban Commando uh, given that, that it's a one totally screen cinema that was totally what you'd paid to see yeah it was pretty awesome uh, but yeah it does happen it, Spe- speaking it does of happen. Die Hard and credits does it make anybody laugh or ma- it makes me laugh anyway well, at the beginning of Die Hard you got the jing 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 and you're seeing you know him getting off the plane or whatever and it slaps on die hard on top of an old man with a big wheelie suitcase picking up something from yes it's just like what and it just goes die hard and you just it's a bloke it's not even John McClane yeah yeah it's a shame just me it, yeah no that's, that's a very good point I think it's why they started having those credits appearing over Black Spirit <laughs> I do think that's the case um, okay, let's move on then. I think we've suitably answered that one, did we? I've yeah, more or less. I dozed off halfway through your answer, but yeah, I'm sure it was good. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, next question from at Louise Burr, who asks, uh, how much marketing is too much marketing? I can't get away from Anchorman 2 at the moment. Hashtag bored. Oh. To put Anchorman 2's marketing into context. We're all wearing Anchorman 2 jumpers right now. <laughs> yes, I, I've tattooed my inner thighs with <laughs> brick and champ, and that's getting a lot of airtime. No, uh, just to give this context, there is a Tango release. You can get Tango cans, which have Ron Burgundy on it, and in a moment of extreme irony, stay classy uh, just beneath it. Sure thing, Tango. Gotcha. Uh, but the best response to that online I've seen is they still make tango? <laughs> yeah, that was what I was thinking, I'll be honest. I saw some, it's not a film, but I saw some One Direction toothpaste yesterday and was genuinely mystified by, by what thought process could have prompted that. You have to keep brushing your teeth like from the beginning, each stroke. So That's what makes you beautiful. Oh, okay. One, just One Direction. Uh, but you, they were also on Saturday Night Live singing with One Direction, the yeah. Anchorman uh, 2 crew. And it's funny, and and at the same time, it's a bit like, do you need to do that? I, I yeah, I kind of do feel you know I'm probably the biggest fan of Anchorman. I'd say Ali, you're a pretty you're a big fan as well, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're probably the biggest fans of Anchorman in, in the office. I wrote all the all the Anchorman two stuff for Empire, and even I'm a little sick of it at this point. And it, I think it's kind of backfired a little bit for the for the show uh, for the film because. Uh, it does have a tendency to turn people off. I've seen a lot of people saying similar things mm. in my Twitter feed. Uh, and you do wonder, will they now not go to see the film? Because they either feel they've seen the film already in the trailers and the TV spots and all the endless clips. Actually, I saw uh, it was either Judd Apatow or the director, uh, Adam McKay, tweeted that if you're going up against something like The Hobbit, which is so huge, you have to do as much as you can to get the name of the film out there, even though... Anchorman has a certain cult appeal. It definitely doesn't have the incredible reach that something like The Hobbit does. So maybe they do need the Blitzkrieg. I have a lot of sympathy for that view, but I think it's uh, there's still a fine line that you you have to try and hit, and I'm not sure they've enti- entirely hit it in this case. It, it's reminded me a little bit of one that was actually quite successful, The Muppets Blitzkrieg, which started with some absolutely genius trailer parodies of other trailers which was brilliantly done but kind of just kept coming and coming and coming and coming and you know there's a little bit of that going on I think with with Anchorman as well I mean I I think they're trying to do kind of stunt promotion rather than traditional just blitzkrieg buses posters kind of promotion and and in some ways if you're going up against the hobbit what you should be doing is maybe spending the money on the buses and not well they have been well they have at the same time but they've been doing everything you know as you said tango and uh whiskey and and all sorts of stuff and it kind of does mostly fit with uh, ron burgundy and the team's image 
But I, I do feel that they may have just slightly overstepped the mark with this one. I think with Anchorman, it's got a fairly finite, dedicated, loyal audience who know it's coming out anyway. We don't need to be reminded necessarily. Um, I don't know how many new followers is going to win over with this campaign. I'm feeling like it's a little... We're being a bit harsh on Anchorman too because so many movies do this, so, so many. And I've got a, a brief list of, you know, people going long, in my opinion, going too far. Skyfall coming out last year was an extraordinary fiesta of the oh, yeah. same articles and every single wannabe, classy newspaper insert magazine. Everyone had, oh, I'm chatting with so-and-so and this is the scent you need to wear. Don't forget the 007 aftershave, which contains no imagery of any actual James Bonds you've ever known. But don't forget also the TV advert for, uh, I think it was a Sony Fio or something like that, with, yeah. uh, with uh, yeah. Daniel Craig actually in the advert. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy thing. Heineken. And Heineken was the other one. But don't forget you could buy Coke Zero Skyfall and you could see Coke Zero on some of the, you know, the spies' desks as you went through the underground office, and you could buy a special signature Coke bottle. And, of course, there, there were articles on that. That was a big enough deal in the British Zeitgeist for that to be a thing. And then you've got the James Bond Bollinger Champagne, which had an opening code. It was in a special metal case where you put the code in 007, and it opened up your champagne. The Great Gatsby did a similar thing earlier this year in, in that it seemed to be everywhere. And I think it, it passed some of us by a little bit because... They focused really heavily on the women's market, um, but every single freaking magazine out there seemed to have an article on 1920s style and why, you know, flapper style is back in and I how you can part. dress up in that style. It was really everywhere. They were, built, they were bringing out every possible tie-in. I mean, they, to the extent of having Tiffany's jewellery tie-ins mm. to a film, which, which strikes me as extraordinarily ambitious, um, but it was pretty. Other bloopers were Speed Racer, which is a movie that is against marketing and and kind of consumerism uh, in its own sweet, sweet way. Has a lot of stuff just mm-hmm. that came out, toys, whatever. Recently, Hunger Games made me laugh. Catching Fire, you get a subway, which is super fiery spicy. The spicy, firing, <laughs> catching fire, super subway sandwich. Just like Katniss Everything would eat. Yes, and of course the Barbie doll that she would play with in... Uh, <laughs> in one of her poorer districts. Uh, you could get a Barbie doll of Katniss. I yeah. get the one of Effie. I don't get the one of her. Uh, and then finally, Star Wars needs to be mentioned here. Yoda's green tea and when Phantom Menace came out, who could forget? Queen Amidala's galactic body wash. Still use it. Still use it. Still feeling fresh. Gets me, yeah, gets me <laughs> those difficult reach spots that Gungans just can't, <laughs> can't oh, satisfy. Oh um, Please stop talking. Well, I think the reason we're picking on Anchorman 2 is obviously it was in the question as well, but also because I have seen people on my Twitter feed say that they're not going to watch the film because of the ubiquity of the marketing campaign. And uh, you would have to say in that case, it may have backfired a little bit. We will find out very, very soon when the, uh, the box office figures come in on both sides of the pond. Okay, next question is from at Gut Punch Prod. Uh, sorry, uh, that's a very... Sectarian name. It's appalling. Where's it's Gut Punch Fenian? I know. Him? What's going on with that? Uh, maybe it's productions. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Okay. Yeah. Gut Punch Prod wants to know, and this is a Christmas question. What's the best movie-related Christmas present you ever received? Mine, as in his, uh, was the three VHS tape Godfather: The Complete Epic. Ooh, that's pretty good. Mm. The one with the chronological order. Oh, that's pretty, yeah, not bad. Not bad. So Blanco. Well, mine, I have to say, and I'm of the generation that, that loved this and wanted this and was desperate for this, but I got the Millennium Falcon and it was the greatest thing ever at the time. We uh, should point out that this was a toy. Yes, it wasn't actually the Millennium Falcon. I didn't okay. fly that over here. You know, I wish I could. I would have done. 
but Chewie has it. He's uh, he's he's getting <laughs> washed. Um, it was it was the toy. It was it had everything you would want. It had real light up stuff. It had sounds. It has the little breakaway escape panel thing where they hide in the film, and it was brilliant. And my parents did a whole thing where they sort of said, "Oh, it was sold out." Oh, we're not sure we can afford it. Oh, Santa Claus might not be able to bring it. They were mean, mean people, and I want them to know this. Uh, <laughs> but in the end, Christmas Day arrived. There it was. My little heart grew ten sizes that day. Really? And yeah, it was amazing. There's actually a medical condition. I, I had to go to hospital for it. But you know, I had the Millennium Falcon to play with, so I was happy, even though I was tragically dying from a burst heart. <laughs> okay, a Merry Christmas, Helen. Um, I got my my brother and sisters. Hi guys, got me um, Wolverine gloves with the big claws on them, which amused me mightily. I don't wear them, but they were funny. What age were you? <laughs> like about twenty seven. <laughs> the right age. And uh, yes, and my dad got me Anthony Lane's book, uh, Nobody's Perfect, which is an absolutely fantastic collection. Very difficult to read when you're wearing reviews. the claws, though, isn't it? It is actually very difficult to turn the page yeah. with the claws. Um, oh, so, slice yeah. through another one. Oh, but it, yeah, it, more slash fiction. <laughs> oh, hey! Oh, well done. So, yeah, those, those would be my two. I have a facehugger plushie, uh, which which is, you can't really keep it out. Like, it's for kids, and yet it's not for kids at all. Uh, so there's that. Uh, there's also a Lego. There's also Lego. There's also a Lego Shelob I have. <laughs> Which is this lovely spider creature. <laughs> Couple of hobbits walking around. Yeah, I've got a Lego Shelob, uh, and that's very cool. One of his legs fallen off, so if you have a oh. spare Shelob leg, we can't find the leg. Oh, man. I know. That's sad. I know, that's amputated. Sad. Two hearts as well, apparently. I'm going to go to the RSPCA. That's just that's terrible. It is that's terrible. I'm sorry. treatment of an evil spider. I shouldn't have brought it up. How about you, Chris? I don't know. Um, I got an AT-AT, uh, a real one, um, but then there was... You know, it was taken down by some guy called Wedge. It was really, really annoying. And I got a couple of uh, Adat toys, uh, much like James did when I was a, a, a kid. Um, and I broke them within about an hour, I think. <laughs> oh, no. What would you uh, do to them? Well, because they had those little lights of blink. And I broke the lights of blink and I ripped the thing off the thing and I, the legs came off. And You're terrible. Was, I was not very good with toys. I used to make my Star Wars figures play with each other and I used to paint them in felt tip to denote where the blood was they used to shoot each other and I used to get a red felt tip and I would colour on <laughs> I'd colour on the uh, the uh, the blast wounds and, <laughs> and uh, someone sometimes would use a black felt tip to if they had been exploded so there'd be some char marks on them as well and I'd take the arms off and wow they're, so the, they're the plague so what you're saying basically yeah. is you're you're a sociopath or a psychopath one of the two I think what you're saying I don't know how to comment on that. I think so. I think you better leave. Yeah, it's, it's the blank emotion of stare. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm actually terrified. I've really enjoyed having you here. Uh, yeah, also I had, uh, last year my wife got me um, an Evil Dead poster framed, which was lovely. And I got the James Bond Tashin book as well. So that's just kind of recent stuff. And some socks. <laughs> wow, yes. were they Argyle socks? Yeah. Argyle, yeah, no, Argyle and uh, Special from, Agent Johnson. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> there, <we> go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, um, let's move on now. Uh, uh, this isn't from one specific person. Loads of you sent in because this is a Christmas podcast. Hooray! Uh, they asked us about our favourite Christmas film, our worst Christmas film, and our favourite non-Christmassy Christmas film. So let's go favourite Christmas film very, very quickly. I know we probably covered this last year, but let's do it again. Alistair Plum. Muppet's Christmas Carol. Okay, why? Tis the season to be happy and joyous. Fa-la-la. 
<laughs> for Marley and Marley. Ooh. James. Uh, well, the one Christmas film I have made the effort to watch so far this year, which is my favourite Christmas film, annual tradition, is Scrooged which I absolutely adore. Bill Murray is genius. Everything about that film is genius. I can pretty much quote it word for word these days. All podcasters on the left. <laughs> All podcasters on the right. Yeah, except for that bit. Just the men. <laughs> just the men. I actually tend to turn off just around the time the singing starts. Okay, just the women. You ladies. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the singing finale. I will watch it oh, because I'm in the Christmas spirit. Put a little love but... in your heart, James. Come on. You <laughs> are a bit of a Scrooge. There's no room since my heart exploded over the Millennium Falcon thing. I mean, it's it's. I, I don't want to. I don't want to see them singing. I want to see Bill Murray being mean and evil and, and you, nasty and you funny. You want to see a Tosa slammed into his face. That too, I do. Yes. Also, his brother. What's with his brother? I don't care about his brother. He's You're so mean. You have a brother. And. Well, yeah, you're Bill Murray in this scenario, clearly. No, I like the rest of it. It's just the brother. It's like, yeah. You Scrooged is the subject of some questions and quiz up. You might be surprised to know. In the Christmas movies round, which I'm currently rocking at the moment, at uh, time of recording, I'm about 89th in the world in Christmas movies. Wow. Quiz up. Fairly impressive. Uh, my life's achievement. Um, one is, director of Scrooge shares a surname with a reindeer. <laughs> That's what good. is it? Obviously Donner. It is Donner. Uh, I went for Blitzen initially. Uh, very disappointed. Uh, and there's another one. How many of Bill Murray's real brothers are in Scrooge? Well, one? there's Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> and, and her off Indiana Jones. Yep. Mm-hmm. She's the most famous of the uh, Bill Murray brothers. Of all the Bill... Uh, honestly, not a patch on... Um, Patch Pete. Murray. <laughs> patch. Yeah, Patch Murray. Gregor and Ebenezer, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, there's three. I don't know their names. Including him? <laughs> Uh, no, three others apparently. Wow. Yeah, so there's wow. there's Huey, pre- Dewey, Louie. I haven't seen this movie in a long, long time, so <gasps> I'm flying blind here. Okay, but there's Bill Murray. Is he count as a brother? There's I'm guessing Joel Murray, who was yeah. in Bobcat Goldthwait's God Bless America. There's Brian Doyle Murray, who's the most famous of the Murray brothers. Of course, is in a lot of uh, Bill Murray's movies, and is of course Clark W. Griswold's boss in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And Jim Belushi. And Jim Belushi, who's the third of the Murray brothers. Let's give ourselves a big round of applause Hooray! for that. Well done, us. Uh, no. Helen, your favourite Christmas film? <laughs> I'm going to say It's a Wonderful Life. And your favourite Christmas film? It's a Wonderful Life. And your favourite Christmas film? <laughs> we could do this all day. <laughs> we could, couldn't um, we? But yeah, it is, it is uh, essential and uh, brilliant and, you know, a classic. Oh, cliched. Well, you're about to say Die Hard, which is equally cliched. So yes, I figured I'd get in there with yes, It's a Wonderful it Life. it is empirically the greatest Christmas film of all time. Well, as, empirically, as, I'm right. As proven in a in a poll by Play.com. Well, no, recently. no. As proved, in a, as proved in a poll by EmpireOnline.com, hence the word empirically. I will redo that. As empirically proved in a poll by, what's the website, Ali? EmpireOnline.com. EmpireOnline.com. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. It'll rubbish. never catch on. It will never catch on. Awesome. So, worst Christmas film, let's go back around. Helen? Um, it's virtually anything shown this time of year on a channel called True Xmas. It would usually be True Movies 2 or something, but from about, seriously, I'm not even kidding, from Halloween on, they rebrand themselves True Xmas, and they just show Christmas movies, and they are all that I've seen, anyway. Dreadful. <laughs> Do you watch them? Do you sit I have. Well, sometimes. Like Last year, I went through a phase of thinking, oh, there's bound to be a good one. And I'd sort of get home at night, maybe, and, you know, try to feel a bit Christmassy, turn on the channel. And it would always be something dreadful. It usually involved a family member of Santa being, for some reason, sent to the real world, where they would inject Christmas spirit, not literally, into 
everyone that they met and make their lives better before being recalled to the North Pole to become the new Santa. Holy cow. There were literally, like, I saw three different films, I think they were different films, with that plot. Ho, ho, holy cow. Indeed. My answer to this question, if you're an ardent follower of the podcast... Uh, and here's hoping you are because it's wonderful go back and listen to all the old ones they're great apart from the ones that aren't Uh, but The Holiday is my least uh, favourite Christmas movie and I finally persuaded my other half to take it off the rotation of Christmas movies to watch we put it to bed now no more because we watched it again the other day and it absolutely astounds me how many people in that film talk to themselves it is extraordinary Cameron Diaz is one of the most irritating characters in film on that uh, and we talked to Rufus Sewell in, again in a previous podcast and he was he was laughing and joking about how he was on set of that film and you know Kate Winslet would be saying something funny and everyone would be going oh Kate you're the best and then Rufus would say something and they'd just go <laughs> go away uh, but yeah that film is truly dreadful and never seems to end well talking about Christmas movies which feature Kate Winslet uh, there is an animated Christmas Carol I'm a sucker for almost any version of Christmas Carol but there is an animated Christmas Carol which is part musical and not in a good way like Muppet's Christmas Carol and it's pretty dreadful to be honest I hate to say sorry Kate I do apologise but it's a really really just cheesy bad stripped down version of Christmas Carol that just does not work in any way shape or form the animation's really dreadful and uh, the songs are pretty awful and I I can't stand it and I will not watch it okay you seem fairly unequivocal on that one yes uh, worst Christmas film for me is tricky because I haven't seen them all which is one thing that quiz up Christmas movies is revealing to me on a daily <laughs> basis uh, what the hell is Thomas Kincaid's Christmas Cottage I keep yelling at my iPhone on the tube which is fun uh yeah, because it throws up these movies I've never heard of. Thomas Kincaid's Christmas College, which is a 2008 film starring, you'd like this, Helen. Yeah. Jared Padalecki. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Marsha Gay Harden, the late great Peter O'Toole, who we'll be discussing later in the podcast. Sorry, sorry, Marsha what? Marsha Gay Harden. Carry on. <laughs> and Peter O'Toole. Sorry, say that again. Anyway, sounds like a corker. Tell me more. moving on let's move on I'm keeping this in anyway uh, I will say one thing about The Holiday uh, which is Eli Wallach is really good in it he's great in it see this is is why I could never put that as the worst yeah it's not fair there are moments of goodness amid all the terrible stuff I think Jude Law is quite good in that movie I think Jude Law really steals that film I mean it's there to be stolen well yeah but he is actually really sweet he's really charming in it I I totally buy it in in a way that you shouldn't for the rest of it but Cameron Diaz go home go home (laughs) go home go home Cameron Diaz you're acting like you're drunk um interesting stuff I mean going back to worst Christmas films I mean there are tons of stuff out there like The Search for Santa Paws or The Twelve Dogs of Christmas I'm sure these are not good films. Mm. I'm never going to see them, so I, I, I will never know. I, I think we're just not aware of most of them in this country. We live in this beautiful, sheltered little island, which is not subject to these storms of American Christmas, where, you know, everybody seems to think, well, if I make a Christmas movie, it will be shown somewhere every year from now on and I will always get residuals it's the same reason that every single artist and again we're not aware of most of these every single artist has a Christmas album out there like we just don't know about it because we're we're thankfully shielded from all this except for you James well yeah I have to say living in America as I do 
uh, there is a channel, there's the Hallmark channel, which I think comes over here occasionally and, and probably is maybe where, where True Xmas gets some of its stuff from, which specialises around Christmas in coming up with the most ridiculously contrived sort of 12 dates of Christmas, people falling in love over Christmas, people booking the same holiday cottage and oh, no. finding true love, even though they start out by... They all start out by being complete opposites and hating each other, and then you know what's going to happen, they're going to fall in love. I think you literally have just described a holiday, by the way. <laughs> that too. <laughs> and Die yeah. Hard, for, for that point. I think we should also just mention good films that people are going to get angry about that we haven't mentioned, like Gremlins and Home Alone and Love Actually. Mm. Shane yeah. Black's entire filmography. Shane, how do we do a Iron Christmas episode and, and not mention Shane? And all of this stuff, so let's just get them on the list. We've mentioned them out loud, so yeah. please don't be angry. 2013 had uh, two very, very good new additions to the Christmas films that aren't actually Christmas films. Iron Man 3 was one of them. Can you name the other one? Star Trek? No. No. Not Rise of the Guardians. Filth. Filth is a Christmas film. Filth is a Christmas Filth film. Filth is a Christmas film. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a very, very dark and mordant and fucked up Christmas film, but uh, a, a great one to stick on. Lovely double bill. As all the best Christmas With films the are, dark <laughs> yes. and mordant yeah, and yeah. effed up. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, but uh, speaking of uh, dark and uh, effed up Christmas films, I watched for the first time the other night uh, a fairy Harold and Kumar uh, 3D <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. There are some um, genius moments in that. There absolutely are. And, uh, and uh, interesting enough... I've got a bit of a fact here. My, some of my Twitter followers have seen this already because I tweeted it. Uh, but the guy who plays Santa in that movie, if you recall, that they uh, they shoot Santa in the face with a shotgun by mistake. And the actor is called Richard Real, or it might even be Richard Really, which works even better for, for this fact. He has played Santa in no fewer than four films and one TV show. Well, so Santa is real? Uh, yes, he is real. That's genuinely... Incredible. It and is. One, as somebody who likes to whip out facts like a tramp does his unmentionables, <laughs> that is a good fact. Did I just fact you? Yeah. Merry Factmas. Uh, let's move on. All done. Christmas movies. Happy? Happy? All right, we're moving on. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, as ever, you can send in your questions via the usual channels. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag, please, Empire Podcast. Otherwise, we won't see it. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, time now for our first interview of a podcast that's more tightly packed than Santa's bulging sack. American Hustle opens in London today and then rolls out across the rest of the country on New Year's Day. It's a second film in 12 months from the prolific and brilliant David O. Russell, uh, who brings together one hell of a cast, Christian Bell, Jeremy Renner, Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Amy Adams, uh, for a 70-set heist caper. Russell came to London recently and spoke to Ali and Helen. Enjoy. Okay, so well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by David O. Russell, uh, director of Silver Linings Playbook, The Fighter, and most recently, of course, American Hustle. How do you do? How do you do? <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's nice to meet you guys. <laughs> it's, it's funny because uh, I, I was aware that the, this film was originally called, at least in the script stage, American Bullshit. Mm. I was curious about the story of why that changed, and also, was it fun including the word bullshit quite a lot in the film? There's one scene in particular where I think Jennifer Lawrence goes, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Well, uh, I think both Amy and Jennifer have moments of that, which I'd never had pointed out to me until right now. So that's an interesting <laughs> observation. See, I get all these interesting, smart observations from you all from out there, right? Because then I go, oh, that's smart. I'm going to talk about that uh, next time. So, because um, we're on the inside. <laughs> 
Um, and sometimes you guys ask questions where I'm like, I don't know how to answer that. That's you know, like about the big playing field of all these movies. I'm like, I don't. That's you're you're up in the blimp looking down on everything, and we're like, I don't. I'm just down here in the trees. I don't. So, um, well, f- yes, Eric Warren Singer had written a screenplay that Charles Roven, my producer on Three Kings, a long time ago, which in a way was the last picture I made before I kind of entered a kind of a wilderness period that lasted you know, for close to ten years, um, that resulted in my it was not an easy period, but I would never give up what I gained from that period, which was a, as a person and as a filmmaker, I feel everything was leading up to these three films. And the per- filmmaker that was so clear in the filmmaking that became so instinctively, intuitively clear to me, starting with The Fighter and Silver Linings, which I'd written before The Fighter. So in the name of that, I'm always looking for characters now that I know I'm looking for. I know what I want to feel. I'll know it when I see it. There are characters like the characters in The Fighter or Silver Linings. It can be very different situations. They're always in a doozy of a predicament that we're in which they must survive and reinvent themselves. There is romance, which I've discovered. If you told me this is a young, cynical filmmaker, I would have scoffed at that. I said, you old fart. You know, but I, uh, I can now say from a no BS point of view that I, I will happily carry that banner um, although I don't, you know, I still believe the films that we're intending to make and the characters are what I think Duke Ellington, one of my heroes, would describe as beyond category, which was his, his aspiration, and it's my aspiration. So people said Silver Lines was a romantic comedy. It made my head snap. I never once would think those words. But I, 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 I said, oh, okay. But to me, it was just from the ground up from those people. But I would never make a story that was, first of all, it was a procedural story that Eric had given us about an incident that was a historical series of incidents uh, in, in involving uh, the mafia, uh, federal agents, uh, con artists who were forced to work for the FBI. Con artists worked, forced to work for the government and teach them in itself is interesting. Um, and then to get involved in successively deeper levels of jeopardy by, uh, by this adventure. Uh, that was an interesting setup. I, however, am not the right filmmaker to make a procedural historical narrative it's not what I there's many other filmmakers who could do that what interests me is the characters as in these previous two films and their hearts and their emotional lives more than if you know, than the incidents of commerce um, and predicament in their lives so so I asked if I could rewrite it and and again you know Eric is a terrific writer and he sort of became my repository of information about some of the real stuff which is useful and much of which is in the film as I was creating the worlds for each of these actors and each of their emotional characters in that narrative of reinvention or survival you know which is which seems to have been a recurring theme in these pictures is that I think I answered that right yeah I think yeah. so so I would not want to make a cynical picture just because that's not who I am and it's not that's not I, I'm sort of the opposite of that I uh, the heart is everything to me if it's come by it honestly with plenty of the bumpiness and harshness that is natural to this world. Was there any sort of controversy in terms of the the marrying of fact and fiction here? Because it is, you know, it's a, it's a well-known story. I didn't know any of the details, but I'd at least heard the name before the film. I, I, I was aware that Abscam was a thing that existed in the world. I mean, so was any, did anybody sort of put pressure on you to, to, to stick true to the facts or stick, stick very closely to the facts or, or did they kind of welcome the fact that well no this will be a more entertaining result this will be a you know a, a, I don't know a better character story there's definitely a conversation I mean if you have producers and you know 
who and and even there was a script that you know out there there are people who are attached to a certain notion of something so there was for sure a period of adjustment what i had in my corner was the last two films so i could point to something and say this is the world we're going to go towards so please trust me you know fasten your seatbelts and you know um and it's an interesting process actually what you choose it's an interesting process. You know, just like with the novel, Silver Linings was an adapted novel. In many ways, it's my most personal revealing film. It's about very much my experience as a father and my son. And Mr. De Niro ha- as well has a personal experience with a family member who has suffered with mood disorder. It's very personal, but it's from a novel. But I made it more, more autobiographical. You see, so that's another mixture over there. So you make it more personal... And you decide it's a very fun process to pick what's true and what's not true to keep for various purposes. You want it to be true to the spirit of what, or, and you have to take a position as to what I think the spirit of that is, that truth is. So I, I, there's many ways. I feel that in many respects, um, the spirit of this story has much to do with what I experienced personally as my father and mother's world of that time, which was a more dignified world, uh, not a scandalous or cynical world. It was, it, it, even in their middle-class way, it had dignity and it had grace and it had a kind of elegance and that they dressed a certain, they dressed for more formally. And it's very innocent comparatively that there's cash in a briefcase. Frankly, it's quaint almost compared to today where sums of money transfer that we could never fit in a briefcase and it would, you know, people don't even know where they came from. Our elections now cost billions of dollars you can imagine this is about thousands of dollars in the name of trying to get construction going in a a depression in an economy so i could very much sympathize with the mayor and the people who when there was no money around trying to find an investor to do something they were easily entrapped were they were they partly dishonest should they should they have not put money in their own pocket yes yes and yes but it wasn't that simple to me it was there was a larger altruistic wish and um, today hundreds of millions of dollars are, are used it's made, been made legal in fact by the United States Supreme Court so and people don't even know where it comes from or where it goes so anyway that's a part of it and if I told you the things that were true in fact this is sort of fun and the things that were not true um, it's rather interesting you know because for example some of the more some of the true things are far more hard to believe than the, than the fictional things. I mean, the fact, for example, the, the guy who played the sheik in real life wasn't even a Latin American Michael Pena, who had brown skin at least. Uh, it was a white guy who put on makeup, you know, who happened to be the brother of actor Brian Dennehy, you know, who happened to be a cop of an agent. So just, I was just was like, the whole thing was so crazy. My question is, is we're kind of talking about these three films, The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, and this, as a sort of trilogy. And I know trilogy is kind of categorizing stuff, as, as your hero wouldn't have liked. But um, I'm happy to, no, I do think it is a three parts of a new trajectory. With that being the case, do you think Mark Wahlberg is a little miffed that he wasn't included somewhere as a cameo, he could have played a waiter. Uh, I love Mark, and Mark, I'm very eternally grateful to Mark for the fighter and uh, for helping me at a period when it was low. Uh, I was low. Um, and we had made three films together prior to that, he and I. Um, so um, I would absolutely work with him again. And part of it was a, a matter of uh, scheduling, and part of it was a matter of that we couldn't work out. We, there was a conversation where he was going to be in silver linings and then it didn't work out 
for a whole variety of reasons, many of which um, were out of my hands that had to do with his dealings with the studio. But so my answer is I would happily work with him. Um, I've got kind of a, a two-part question. It's about, I mean, people, uh, other directors have, have talked to us in the past and they've said that doing something, something set in the recent past is almost in some ways more difficult than doing a sort of a corsets drama in the 19th century. You know, that, that getting the detail right in something that's within people's lifetime can be, can be quite a tough thing. I mean, is, is that something that you find uh, with, with something like this that's set in the, you know, late 70s? And, and my second part, I guess, is a, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, it's the hair those, those are some seriously bad haircuts for the guys. Did, did any of them quail? Did any of them hesitate? See, people say that we don't think of them as terrible hairstyles. I don't know what <laughs> happened. Maybe we went through the looking glass. We, we thought they were fa- it was fantastic and beautiful hair. And maybe that's part of our great love affair with these people. When I, when I make a world about people, I'm never really... By the time I'm in the world with them, for example, in The Fighter with Melissa Leo... And her hair and the sister's hair, there was some large hair in the fighter. I, by the time we were over there, we just loved it probably the way they loved it. We just thought, this is fantastic. This, we love this. I love this. This is the best way I could look. So we all felt that way by that point. Um, we never approach hair per se as a separate thing because then it's broken off from the organic characters in the story. And I never would approach the era per se as a separate entity, only through the people and their emotions. So... Irving's comb over, you know, which I knew, I knew that Christian would be very captivated by what the real fellow looked like, and he did look like that. And Irving, Christian could meticulously construct his comb over in real time. And uh, I had seen my father and others do that at the time. It is an art, it's human, it's vulnerable. Um, yes, it's funny, it's also soulful and revealing. Those are all the ways we saw it, uh, never merely as a joke. And, and Bradley Cooper's hair, his per character had aspirational reasons why he thought that was the most beautiful. He wanted to get from Brooklyn to Manhattan, not unlike John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever. He was someone who was in a life that he wasn't sure was everything he wanted it to be, uh, living at home with his mom and a fiancé that he seems to me not be sure about. So there were characters we looked at, him and I, Bradley, Baseball players, professional baseball players from the 70s who had their hair in curlers in the dugout during a game, you know, sometimes smoking a cigarette, if, which is even more shocking. They're smoking. I'm like, is he smoking a cigarette during a game? And uh, it was a different world then before the, before the major salaries. They're like, wow. So anyway, so we did that. With, and it was really beautiful for Amy Adams to have her hair like an animal who, in terms of an animal changing their shape or form in terms of defense or power. So Amy's hair, and we did think of each character as an animal in some respects. Irving was like I called the badger because he was kind of thick and slow and has these blinking eyes. If you remove his glasses, they reveal a vulnerability. But he's extremely cunning and and, and, and formidable. Um, Amy also, you know, the women characters became a major realization to me of of massive exponential power, starting with the fighter. Um, The more the more powerful the women characters on equal footing with the men, to me, the, the better the whole narrative and movie is. Not that they even have to be men, you know, but I'm saying that in these stories there are men, but the, the, the more you get the women to be right there, the better the whole thing is. So Amy's hair would change. As an animal, when an animal puffs up its hair, 
to occupy more space, you know, to scare away an opponent. You know, when Amy goes to the casino and she knows she's going to see her rival, that's really her hair. That It's extraordinary what could happen to it when they cr- did that to it. It looked like twice its volume. And when she had that marvelous face-off with Jennifer, there's also a more elegance and a formality in this world, which as we talked about before. So I love the women with their hair up, like Jennifer Lawrence's hair. And uh, Elizabeth Rom, who plays the mayor's wife, Dolly Polito, just there's some something so enchanting to me about remembering that world where women dressed like that and had their hair up and as a daily thing almost. By the way, Jeremy Renner, that is his hair. And his hair could almost be defined as a, it's like the fin on a Cadillac, you know, in terms of American, the American dream. This is a man who sincerely believes in the American dream, an Italian immigrant who has now become a mayor and a state assemblyman who is sincere in his wishes for his people who have now, the constituencies become primarily black and Puerto Rican, which had happened in the 70s. And he has every bit of belief in their chances. His family had a chance. His hair says all of that. My next question is, we're talking about this as a trilogy and you, you seem to have wrapped it up in a bow. The more I've been thinking about it during our conversation now, I was just wondering about what you do to follow it up. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen that you've got something on to get this right, hopefully. Is it the legacy of secrecy? What is your, your next project? It's really not, I haven't clearly picked it. You know, this is the most rapid succession I've made films in. It's like three films in almost three years, and um, which is wonderful because energy begets energy, and you strike from instinct, which that keeps you out of your head. I do not know what I'm going to do next. I don't know. And so there's a couple of things we're talking about. It will be characters like this, though, and perhaps have many or some of the members of this kind of repertory that I've been, uh, knock wood, I feel very privileged to work with their trust and I cherish their trust over anything yeah Jennifer Lawrence was saying to me it's like a family so I yes oh, did you speak to Jennifer yeah I was at Cannes and uh, she was saying yeah it's just like coming home it's nice you know that's special you have to be very um, careful and protective of that you know because it's a privilege mm. and then you never know I mean you know, so you have to it's a privilege I mean Jennifer shows up and Jennifer it's wonderful if she can feel comfortable to take a risk Take enorm- each, each actor is taking an enormous risk. Amy Adams is playing three characters, essentially. She's playing, she's playing a woman who is really from Albuquerque, and she's playing a woman who's pretending to be British. Uh, she's playing the woman who can't sometimes is confused by the two characters she's pretending to be and is in there herself saying, wait, 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 what do I really wish for in my heart? How can I really make my life better in my heart? Which man will I love and which path will I choose? Uh, so that's a lot for her to have done. For her to come back and take that risk, it's, it's an enormous thing. You know, I mean, to play against type, each one of them, you know. So, so just last question, is there anyone that you're sort of after to join the company, mm. as it were? I don't really, I don't know, let me think. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful actors there. I think, here's the funny thing, you know, you learn to do this. In, in the kismet or the sort of instinct world, things reveal themselves. So I don't know what's going to be revealed. But I mean, it's, it's a knock on wood. It, you know, it will come forward as it's meant to. And you have to have faith that the, uh, that's part of the process. Is that faith? You don't sweat it. Here's to that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank, Thank you, very you very much. guys very much. Okay, moving news time now. I guess we should start with the passing last week, passed away on Sunday, uh, Saturday actually, but the news was announced on Sunday, of the great Peter O'Toole. Yes, very sad news. Perhaps not, you know, terribly surprising. He, he was looking frail these days and had announced his retirement from acting a little while ago. But um, 
But, I mean, you know, this is Lawrence of Arabia we're talking about, so however long he had lived, I think it would still come as a shock and a, a disappointment to many that such a great actor has gone. Yeah, it's 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 strangely... I mean, obviously everyone mentions Lawrence of Arabia on the, uh, in all the obituaries. Mm. Uh, it is obviously a classic film. It lends itself very much. It feels almost like a Christmassy movie to me, Lawrence of Arabia. You know, it's, it's one of those movies, those hardy perennials is always on at Christmas and it's four hour long so you can actually take the time at Christmas to sit down and watch it. But I think it's wonderful and fitting that Peter O'Toole is frozen forever as Lawrence of Arabia on screen. I mean, he just kind of tumbled onto the screen as this ready-made matinee idol, you know, amazingly good-looking, fantastic voice, one of the best voices of all time, and those bl- wonderful blue eyes, just forever there encapsulated. Yeah. Um, speaking of Christmas movies that kind of aren't or aren't considered as such, actually, one of his favourites of mine is The the Lion in Winter, one of my favourites of his, yeah. I should say, yeah. is The Lion in Winter, which is set at Christmas time and sees uh, Henry II and his formidable wife, Eleanor Aquitaine, played by Catherine Hepburn, uh, get together for a family showdown, frankly. Incredible cast, and but just such a good film, such a good balance of... This this really formidable woman and this all powerful king, absolutely brilliant, brilliant role for uh, for O'Toole and all of them. And while we're talking about movies that are destined to be often shown at Christmas and Christmas holidays and any holiday, and a film that introduced him, at least his voice, to a whole new generation is uh, Pixar's Ratatouille, in which he plays uh, the critic Anton Ego. Basically, all of us film critics living our lives vicariously through him. But he's a the snidey food critic who decides he's going to destroy the restaurant. And uh, basically, spoiler alert, has everything turned around for him by the ratatouille, which reminds him of his youth in the most wonderful little zoom shot that takes him straight back to his youth. And it's it's just his voice. And he's so brilliant because he's so cold and calculating to begin with and then he just transforms and it's it's a magnificent performance even though you you simply hear him yeah i think i think peter O'Toole would be the first to admit that his career in his latter years didn't go quite the way he had hoped or planned but there were mitigating circumstances obviously he uh, his well-documented hellraiser and uh, his battle with alcohol addiction it certainly put paid to laugh for a large part of it but uh, this is one of the greatest actors of all time he was nominated for eight Oscars eight Oscars beat that Daniel Day-Lewis he didn't win any but when you look at the people who won in the years that he went up against you know Gregory Peck to Kill a Mockingbird and Brando and The Godfather people like that Ben Kingsley and Gandhi you kind of can just about see why they gave him an honorary Oscar I think in 2003 Uh, he turned it down initially because he said I still hope to win one of the buggers outright one day and in a letter to the Academy Um, but then accepted it after all and it's good so you know I'm I'm glad he had something on his shelf uh, at long last for that and his last uh, nomination came uh, for Phoenix Roger Michelle's Phoenix which is fantastic in which he plays an ornery and horny and slightly lascivious uh, agent actor and it's a very very touching very very funny performance if you want to give a good sign-off or just kind of say goodbye to uh, Mr O'Toole, I recommend uh, looking at his um, appearance on the Letterman show when he came in over to London, i.e. Letterman, not O'Toole, and uh, he just walks in on a camel. I say walks in, he rides in on a camel, mm. and uh, the music's all there, and he's all he's smoking a long cigarette, and he's just kind of waving around, and then he gives the camel some beer, uh, <laughs> and it's it's just great. So it's, it's just a great video. Check it out. Julia Lawrence tune, isn't he? He's coming on from the yeah. It's just it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, and uh, if you want to look out for some more great Peter O'Toole films, I mean, obviously Beckett as well. We haven't mm-hmm. mentioned that. Um, my favorite year, which is probably my favourite of his films he's fantastic in that 1982 movie and uh, hell why not 
Supergirl. <laughs> I loved Why him. Not that was my introduction it? to him. Was it really? Yeah. I really? Was, I'd never, well, I mean, I was young. Wow. <laughs> but it was that was where I first saw Peter O'Toole. That is awesome. There's also a fantastic book called Hellraisers uh, by an author called Robert Sellers who um, has written for Empire a couple of times, full disclosure. Um, but it is a fantastic book about the Hellraiser exploits of Peter O'Toole, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and uh, Oliver Reed as well. And there's also a graphic novel version of it with uh, illustrations by Jake, who's a very, very good artist as well. So if you can check out either version of that, then you get some amazing tales. Uh, so yeah, the late great Peter O'Toole, who yeah. died this week. We should also mention the sad passing as well of Joan Fontaine, um, one of the stars of the sort of 30s and 40s in Hollywood in particular. I think that was her kind of heyday. Um, You know, most famous, I think, for Hitchcock's Rebecca, uh, where she was the second Mrs. De Winter. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, but had a, you know, a storied career through Hollywood. Sadly, I think in in modern times in, in sort of pop culture she's probably best known for feuding with her sister for the last 70 years Olivia de Havilland who survives her and who did release a statement saying that, that she appreciated everyone's expression of sympathy and that it was a sad day so you know maybe that's some kind of slight acknowledgement that you know they were still sisters at the end uh, but yeah she she also died uh, on Monday that the news came through and uh, mm. yeah so go back and, and, and check out some of her films if you're not familiar with her work it's great Absolutely. Weirdly enough, her last movie, uh, at least according to the IMDb, um, weirdly enough, her last movie was a, a Christmas film. Oh, well, there you Good go. Good King Wenceslas in 1994, where she played Queen Ludmilla. But there you go, the great Joan Fontaine, who also died this week. Uh, let's move on to movie news. That's actually coming out from Hollywood then. Before we go straight into movie news, I just want to mention that uh, Breaking Bad's spin-off series, Better Call Saul, is going to be getting a Netflix release in the world that is not the USA. Are you aware of that, James, as a concept? Yes. The world that isn't the USA. It is. I mean, it will be... I think it will be on Netflix uh, US as well, but it'll premiere in the US on AMC, obviously the channel that that produces uh, Breaking Bad and will be producing Better Call Saul. Uh, it'll it'll sort of be on. Then I think it'll be on. It said they've said within days it'll be on Netflix UK, Europe, Latin America, around the world. So you'll be able to see it, you know, much more quickly than you used to be able to see Breaking Bad back in the day when it started. Until people wised up and realised that you know UK audiences actually wanted to see it pretty quickly compared to America. So usually the day after for Breaking Bad, certainly this season, it was nine o'clock on Monday morning, which meant a lot of people were mysteriously late for work. Monday morning. I'm just late for work every day, so I didn't really notice. But uh, uh, yeah, that's great news. Do they know when it went to starting? When's uh, do we have an ETA on? We we have 2014, but nothing more so specific than that. And when's that? That would be the next year coming. It'll it'll happen right. at the end of this month, Chris. Really, that soon? The, the year will happen. The year yeah. will happen. Wow! All at once. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. That's going to be great. Um, okay, so what else do we have? Well, I bring news. Uh, that Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, is going to be producing Sandman with Warner Brothers. Now, we don't know yet if he is also directing or starring. He is, of course, now established as a director after Don John. He's been long established as a movie star. He would be, I think, a decent fit for Sandman. He's one of those characters that I have trouble conceiving of anyone playing. But uh, I think if you're going to get someone out of the current sort of crop of Hollywood stars, he would seem to be a decent choice. Um, so he, he tweeted, uh, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, I'm incredibly honoured to be working with David Goyer, Warner Brothers and Neil Gaiman on Sandman, hashtag prelude. And then just to clarify, folks, I've signed on as a producer on Sandman. The rest remains to be seen. Delighted you guys are excited. I am too. So 
that's about as much as we have at the moment. Um, I mean, to be honest, it's a good thing that they're taking Sandman seriously enough to get this kind of talent involved. Uh, as Neil himself, Neil Gaiman, told us when he came into the podcast earlier this year, and do go back and listen to that if you haven't already, uh, he told us about some of the attempts in the past, and uh, I'm just going to horrify anyone who's actually read the comics. Um, they at one point had a, a treatment of Sandman, which had Sandman being one of three brothers, along with the Corinthian and Lucifer, uh, which is, you know, outrageous and terrible. So this, you know, I'm thinking is going to be a slightly more faithful version. The fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt hashtag prelude suggests that they're going from Preludes and Nocturnes, which is the first volume in the collected series, which is in some ways the kind of least Sandman-y of the lot, but it probably is the most cinematic, so it makes a certain amount of sense. Do you think Do you think it should be a film or do you think someone like HBO or somebody should really try and pick it up because it's the sort of layered, complicated story it's so tough to do in you know mm. two-hour films, even if you get a franchise going? It, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because some of the best Sandman stories barely feature Sandman. Um, and and yet there is an overall arc to it and there's an overall shape. It's not an overall arc that Hollywood is particularly geared towards without giving away any spoilers for those of you who haven't read it. Um, but it is uh, a really interesting one. I can see that you can adapt certainly bits of it as a film or films. Um, I think a really... I mean, I almost wish something like Netflix could take it, actually, rather than HBO and do something really weird and non-linear with it. That would be a really interesting approach, almost in a sort of Arrested Development Season 4 kind of thing. Um, But that is probably impossible, Um, not least of all because trying to produce some of the stuff in Sandman on the big screen would be mental. I probably shouldn't admit this, given my reputation... Uh, you're all pointing at me now. Yes, I have never read Sandman. Oh my goodness! Get out. Shall um, I? Shall I do a little bit of setup then, and not assume everyone's read it? You maybe, but um, maybe. yeah. G- g- let's give it time. Okay. So yeah. uh, the basic premise: the Sandman, aka Dream, aka Morpheus, aka about sixteen other names, um, is the personification of Dream. Uh, he is the the kind of uber being not a, a level above gods who um controls basically imagination um and at the beginning of this series of books he is captured he's imprisoned by a sorcerer um or a, a, a Alistair Crowley style wizard basically for about 70 years and things go a little bit crazy while he's gone when he finally breaks out he has to kind of reclaim his kingdom of dream and and reassert his his authority over the dreaming. Um, it is he is one of seven siblings, along with uh, now. Let me get them. See if I can get them in order: destiny, death, desire, despair, delirium, and destruction. The last two should be reversed if we're going in order in birth order. Uh, and they are all basically just you know personifications of of massive forces. The septuple D's. Woo. <laughs> and uh, Death is one of probably everybody's favourite character, weirdly enough. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's an incredible cast to be working with in terms of the characters to to play with is amazing. Um, will we see them all? Dunno. Will they all be done justice? No idea. Is this a good start? Yeah, probably. I have imagined when thinking about a Sandman adaptation that a Tom Hiddleston alike would be good as 
Sandman because he, you need to be gaunt for me. You actually mm. need to look a bit like a young Neil Gaiman, but you need yeah. to be quite gaunt and kind of have a beaky Roman nose. Not that Tom Hiddleston does, but you need that figure. Some height definitely, definitely. would help. Yeah, um, yeah. That, I mean, this is it's one of those things. Are we going to get everything we need? I mean, I think in, in terms of this sort of the personality for it, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt wouldn't be a bad shout. But he's he's not un- he's not tall he's enough. Not tall. He's not tall. This is true. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if we'll get... Every, no, I do know. We're not going to get everything we want on this one. It's not going to happen. So if they're doing it, then I just hope they do a reasonable job. Okay. I, I, I feel suitably chastened and humbled. I've been asked to hand in my comic book uh, fans' uh, gun and badge. I don't know where the gun came from, frankly. I will read Sandman over the Christmas holidays. Hooray! Didn't it come from The Punisher? It did come from the Punisher, actually. <laughs> I've read the Punisher, and now people are judging me again. But Garth Ennis's run is fantastic. So up yours, uh, right, James? What have you got? Uh, well, uh, let the let the whatever color smoke you're going to let out go because we have a new Sarah Connor. <laughs> uh, black smoke, grey smoke, pink smoke? No, no, uh, probably red, not that. Red smoke after red the smoke. Godzilla trailer. Red smoke after the Godzilla trailer. Yeah, uh, we we do have a new Sarah Connor for the new Terminator, as they want to say, franchise uh, reboot, whatever they're calling it. It's called Terminator Genesis currently. Whether that name sticks is another matter. The new Sarah Connor. Is Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones? Khaleesi. The very same. I, so. I'm. I'm gonna. I probably should admit this now on the podcast. <laughs> but I've. I've never. I've never seen Game of Thrones. Oh my goodness! Chris. I genuinely thought you were about to say Terminator. <laughs> no, I've, I've seen Terminator. That's the one with the bears with the symbols in their chests, isn't it? That's the one. Johnny Five. Yes. <laughs> Johnny Five will hug you to death. I love you. Um, I'll be back. Yeah, I've never. When I'm not reading Sandman over the Christmas holidays, I will, of course, be playing for you. You're going to have some fun this time, honestly. You yeah. should watch Game of Thrones as well. Okay. There's boobies in it. You'll like it. What? There's dragons Why in it. Why didn't you say so? Amelia Clark is very good in it. She is very tough as the sort of disinherited uh, queen mm-hmm. of Westeros and Khaleesi as well. There, there has been some worried chatter as whether she might be too young to be Sarah Connor, but I don't think so. I think she's got the chops. And, uh, How she old lo- is she? She is, I don't know. Early 20s? Well, Early so 20s. was Linda Hamilton. So, well, yeah. you just got to think about it. They're going to be setting it, obviously, at the same time as the Sega Genesis. So what's that? <laughs> is that late 80s? Is this early 90s? I, I would love it. I love the plot. Oh. <laughs> yeah, They have to go back in time to stop the Sega Genesis from being a massive flop. <laughs> Otherwise, Skynet will take over. We've got something. It's called the GameCube. It's going to change everything. <laughs> Play with me if you want to live. That's, I beg your pardon. No, that's crazy. <laughs> I need your clothes, your boots, and your controller. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. I just want to make mention of this. It's not. Oh, are we done with uh, Terminator? Oh, is, that, is that all you had to say? To I, I th- well, uh, she's, she joins. She joins Jason Clark, who no relation, who has been signed as the new John Connor. Uh, some obviously relation. there'll be there'll be some relation. <laughs> there'll obviously be some you know the usual time travel shenanigans about that. Currently, apparently, they are now looking for a Kyle Reese. They haven't sort of locked in on that yet. Someone like Garrett Headland is apparently in the offing, but nobody has been officially announced yet. Okay, so her son will be much older than she is. So assumably he'll come back from the future to try and save his mum from something. And I don't know or if I said this in the podcast last week. Possibly become his own dad. Ew. I think that's no. a good way to go for this for the franchise. No. No. Or no. we might just have the time frame split more evenly between the two. We might have more future scenes, which would explain 
Jason Clark's involvement there. Yes. If you have John Connor coming back, that seems crazy to me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If you're an actor, obviously, and you're you're looking for this part, be sure to uh, send your uh, your Reese's pieces. Oh, yeah, oh. man. To uh, to the appropriate producers. Fist bump. Ah. Am I right? Yeah. No. It's Moving Christmas, on. so you've got to forgive me. Oh, it's okay. going to be hard to decide whether to cut that out or not. No, I think we should keep it in, and we should, we should put echo on it. <laughs> Possibly a fan Just to emphasise the comedy. Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> okay, uh, Ali, what do you got? Uh, just quickly, and Sony has announced its Spider-Man spin-offs and the writers attached. Read that. Read that online. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving that as an Upworthy-style hook. You can, go, you can go read about it online. This story came in. This story broke just as you were finishing editing last week's podcast, and we were like, should we go back and put it in? And you were like, no, I don't want to. And so now, we're t- now we've reduced it to go and read it online. We should probably give it a little bit of context. Right, so, right, right, okay, fine, right, <laughs> right. Okay, Alex Kurtzman, long-time writing partner Roberto Orsi, alias writer Jeff Pinkner, and Cabin in the Woods, Drew Goddard, and now you see me writer Ed Solomon, have become a five-strong brain trust to create the Spider-Man spin-offs involving the villains. The Final Draft 5. The Final Draft 5 uh, that will create the Sinister Six movies, uh, which include such characters as the Vulture and Venom and so on. Kurtzman will tackle Venom, Goddard will pen the script for the Sinister Six as, as, a, as a whole, and is also maybe looking at being director as well. Uh, this also is interesting because we talked previously in previous podcasts about the Netflix thing where he'll be involved with the Daredevil side of things. So he's going to have his head firmly in that Marvel Universe. I think, you know, we don't have much time to talk about this. Again, go to the website. There's so much comments on there. It's fantastic. We, we don't need to talk about it here because Chris and I need to, and James and I need to, and Helen and I need to have a big discussion about Ed Helms possibly playing the legendary Frank Draven in the Naked Gun reboot. I said it was not reboot-proof, this spoof. It will be shut down you. I promised my Twitter followers, all three of them, a banshee whale. In response to this news, cover your ears. This is from okay. First Class Banshee. Here it comes. Yeah. Caleb Landry Jones. No. It's going to be... Here we go. I'm Irish, so I should be... Proper I Irish should be good banshee. at this. I should be good at this. I'll clean that up. Well, this is this is this is pretty bad news. This is uh this is bad news. This is bad news. I, I can't see anything good coming out of this. I want to be positive about this. I I do too, but I can't. I can't. It's not one of those things. Yeah, Ali's lost for words. We actually polled readers online on the news story. Sixty-six percent of them said this. Is the final insult? <laughs> um, out of the twenty-five percent uh, said, "I'd say it has about a fifty-fifty chance of being good, but there's only a ten percent chance of that." Very good, very um, good. Six percent. The biggest question is who will play the O.J. Simpson role, and three percent. Only three percent said, "Like swimming in raw sewage, I love it." <laughs> so, I mean, th- the public response. I think it's fair to say is not mostly welcoming. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we we never like to write a movie off in advance. No. But I mean, we could always make an exception. Yeah, this is very very interesting news. It's a spoof. It's very hard for me to see how they're going to reboot a spoof. Mind you, we said that about the Pink Panther, which isn't a spoof necessarily, but it's a very similar character, Frank Drebin and Inspector Clouseau, and they did that. Not just with Steve Martin, uh, they did with Roberto Benigni, and uh, believe it or not, you can check it out. This film exists. Alan Arkin. Playing Inspector Clouseau. So go, if you can't check that out, 
Wow. Um, Imagine Steve Martin as Frank Drebin. See, that works, and not just because he's got, he's got white hair, but the, the, Leslie Nielsen and Frank Drebin are just just, just yeah. perfect storm of casting. Ed Helms, uh, he also acts and writes, um, but Ed Helms, uh, it, it, it just seems to me they've cast him because he has a side parting. That seems to be his only qualification. to be. He's a very, very funny man. I just don't see him being Drebin. I can, I can get the... National Lampoon's vacation reboot slash sequel that he's currently in development on because there he's going to play Rusty Griswold and you can kind of see there's some sort of comedic heritage with him and Chevy Chase. There's nothing, I don't think, anyway, to tie him to Leslie Nielsen's taking this role. Why don't we just assume it's going to be a completely different police comedy? Let's just treat it as a completely different police comedy and try and just ignore the name. But also you have the problem with diminishing returns. I know Nick isn't here yeah. to argue the case, but the Naked Gun series did get yes, progressively less so. funny yes. as it went along. And so, are the jokes still there? Are they going to be fresh enough? Can you can you just do the same joke from a movie that's to be twenty five years old? I don't know. Scary Movie Five was a return to form, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sometimes you say these things, and your eyes do not betray whether you're being funny or not. This is a problem I have. <sighs> Again, that happened just there. Just then. Uh, are we done with the movie news? Yes, we are. It's let's a shame because yeah. I really wanted to get into Sinister Six, but because uh, uh, I don't think there's all right, am yeah. All right, Paul Rudd and Ant-Man. Yes. yes okay. okay, so uh, the news just broke this morning, literally, that uh, Paul Rudd, who has been rumoured for the role uh, for a little while now, uh, is uh, Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. Well, he's in negotiations anyway. Uh, all yeah. right, he's in negotiations, which is almost. Yeah. I think he's a stroke of genius. I yes. love Paul Rudd. Perfect for the role. He's maybe a little older than many people would be expecting, but it doesn't matter. He looks so young anyway. He's about the same age as Danny Jr. was when he took on Tony Stark. There you go. Yeah, about the same age and he doesn't look it he looks 12 let's be honest uh, he hasn't aged a bit um, I think it's fantastic he's he's deserved to be a much bigger star for a long long time now and uh, hopefully this will be the, the, the vehicle he needs it's mm. funny for me because I remember watching Friends when he came in in the last two or three seasons I found him intensely annoying I've since learned to like him more in retrospect when they've been on reruns but I just didn't get him now Every movie he's in, I'm, I find myself watching it, and not just because of my friend Shona, Hello Shona, who's addicted to Paul Rudd, so much so that I actually, you know, seeing it on Netflix, I started watching uh, that terrible Jack Nicholson, Reese Witherspoon, Owen Wilson movie. How do you know? How do you know? Yeah. Without the question mark. Yeah. How do you know? Uh, yeah. How do you I just know? love the Rudd. I think he's brilliant. And he was great in Prince Avalanche earlier this year. Yeah, so. it was fantastic. So give him, a, give him a superhero movie. Well done. Also, he has the power to control ants. Which must have helped in the audition. Uh, okay, uh, one very, very quick thing. We should mention this. This is the last podcast of the year, uh, so it's time to plug the new issue of Empire, which will be on sale December 31st. 31st? Yep. New Year's Day. Yes. Uh, so um, it's a Tuesday. Well, it's a very exciting one because this kicks off our 25th birthday year. Empire turns 25 this year, which means it can finally hire a car abroad. (laughs) So that's really exciting. It's also, I mean, so we've got our 25 biggest films of 2014 preview. There are some amazing uh, world exclusives throughout the issue. Uh, Hollywood filmmakers have pulled out all the stops. There's tons and tons and tons of great exclusives. And that's just in the features section alone. Uh, it is fantastic. Pick it up. It is worth the price of admission. This is going to be one of those ones that you want to keep. So look forward to it. It's also got the Monty Python Mega interviews. Which It has the Monty Python Mega interviews. It has uh, has uh, set visits on New York Winter's Tale and 300 Rise of an Empire. Quite apt uh, for our 25th anniversary. And uh, as the year goes on, our issues are only going to get bigger and more ambitious. You ain't seen nothing yet. Next issue is is... 
it's killing me at the moment, frankly. But uh, yeah, it's gonna it's, be it's, mega. It's gonna be mega. Um, can't say anything more about it until uh, about three or four weeks' time. But believe me, it will blow your socks off. I hope. Copy might not, but the pictures will. Um, right. So that's it for news. Yes. Okay. Let's move on now to our second interview. Chasey uh, Jandor burst onto the scene as a writer director a couple of years ago with the brilliant and very talky drama Margin Call. He's done a one eighty, complete one eighty for his second movie, All Is Lost, which stars Robert Redford and only Robert Redford as a solo sailor facing a life or death struggle on the high seas with virtually no dialogue. It's one of the most interesting and brilliant movies of the year. And Helen and I spoke to Chasey Jandor about his staggering achievement when he came to London recently. Didn't we, Helen? We did. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of All Is Lost, Mr. J.C. Chandor. Hello, sir. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so we were just talking. I mean, we, I, I love All Is Lost. I, I saw it in Cannes, was absolutely blown away by it. And we were talking about how it would make a great triple bill with Captain Phillips and Gravity. Is that something <laughs> that you would sit down and watch yourself? And I, can, I am not the kind of guy that can do two movies. I'm a one movie in a day guy. I, I'm too uh, fidgety. Um, my wife and a couple other of my dear, dear friends, they love to go and they can like go for it, you know, but I, I do one movie and I, I need to go, you know, I'm still like a, you know, the six year old boy that needs to like run around a little bit. Um, but no, I mean, it's been, you know, for my little movie to kind of be swept along in, in this, um, you know, really exciting period where these these films that people are sort of complaining don't get made anymore mm. but yet here they all are and and so it's 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 pretty exciting you know someone was like is there something in the air whatever i was like if my if my film had been crap at Cannes and hadn't been any good, you know, no one would have said there are two movies that you know. Like, there's always five movies about one topic out every year, and it yeah. just happens to be that we all did a, pr- a pretty good. Well, I did a pretty good job, and those guys did a, a really good job of kind of creating this um, this this sort of you know movement. But the other thing about that, just a quick thing, is. Those are only movies. Those aren't TV shows. Mm. They, they can't be anything else. I mean, mm. they could be, but certainly all is lost. You wouldn't want to spend a season, <laughs> you know, with this guy lost at sea. Yeah. It really is something that I was attracted to because it sort of is only a movie. And it's what movies do great, which is, which is sort of bring you into this environment for a very limited period of time. My film... If, if it's going to work for you, you can't be on your couch, you know, watching four other tablets. You need to actually be paying attention. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the way the film is designed. It's designed to be a movie. And, and I think for filmmakers and, and all those guys there, you know, that have done those other movies you mentioned, there may have been something to that, which is, you know, we're sort of moving towards topics in films right now that really are best viewed in this way. Hmm. Because I guess, you know, TV's doing what it does very well, and therefore films that need to. Which TV is a—it's a wonder world in TV right now. I'd maybe. love to do it sometime, but you know that that can. There's so many opportunities in in TV. But maybe that's why these these stories of kind of alienation and isolation are are best as films because then you don't have to you know establish yeah. fifty different characters that can carry the entire series. Yeah, and you don't you you sort of you re, when I made this film I absolutely was relying on the audience only paying attention to it and if you don't you're not going to get the movie you're going to miss half the thing if you're sort of checking your phone the whole time so in editing this movie and making this movie it is designed and will only work for you um, if you sort of cut yourself off for 
a hundred minutes from all the other things that are cluttering your mind and just go on this journey with us. And, and um, it is made with that intention. This isn't made to sort of, you know, something important is coming, you know, which is, I, I know TV writers who are friends of mine and they're like, when I'm about to have an important piece of information come, I now often do loud noises before it to get people to look up from their tablets to make sure wow. that they're that they're with me. You have to sort of think about that because you know what they're doing. You know, I mean, my wife, when I walk in and see her watching television, it is barely watching television. You know, it's, it's six other things at once. And so this film uh, will not work if that's what you're going to do. <laughs> we talked in Cannes about, uh, about where this movie came from. Um, and you said at the time part of it was wanting to do a deliberate 180 degree shift from Margin Call, which had all the dialogue in the world, and obviously this doesn't. But was there something else beyond that, the, the idea of doing a, a, a tale of survival at sea? Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I've only, it's, it's, it's really fun that through this, this sort of press tour of the last three weeks, I've been with Mr. Redford, you know, traveling all over the place. And um, you do start to realize you know, when people ask you, you know, why did you do this? You sort of, uh, you know, at Cannes, it was such a whirlwind, you know, that was so stressful, frankly. You don't, you know, uh, the, the, you know, Only God Forgives, which which showed, you know, I, I that was what people had told me had happened at Cannes. And I actually went back and sort of liked that movie. But, but you know, the way that that festival, they can turn on you oh, yeah. and pretty much your movie is over before it ever started. Um, you go into Cannes when you got a one man in a boat movie that you're afraid that that could be there you know you know i know that sounds crazy now because people seem to have reacted well to this film but i didn't know that going in and so when we talked there i was probably just so damn relieved that i was going to be able to work again you know (laughs) but but in further retrospect um kind of looking back on it and really realizing you know why did i do that um and it wasn't just because i actually realized the other day that i wrote the letter that opens this film first long before I'd sort of realized what the movie was. And I actually realized I had written it on a train going back and forth between uh, a city north of New York City called Providence, which is about three hours away um, from New York where I was editing. And my family and my daughter and my young two-month-old son and my wife, I was abandoning them going down to New York to do Margin Call. And that letter, in a way came from a place where someone asked if it was about my dad, who, you know, is 70 and is kind of similar to this character. But I, and I answered no, you know, and, and then I said, it's about me. And I didn't understand why I had said that, but I said it. But then I thought for the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about it. And I realized this film is sort of about, in a way, kind of unfulfilled potential, or not even that, but unfulfilled adventure. It's a, it's a guy who at the end of his life sadly sort of has regrets you know mm. which we all will but but his seem to be fairly profound and 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 they're not just personal but they also seem to be professional in a way mm. you know when he says i always hoped for more for you all um so i realized that in a way that letter was sort of the farewell letter that i as a 75 year old man hoped to never write. Um, yeah. and, and I don't ever want to be in that place. And the film then just snowballed from that letter. So once I had the letter and I kind of started to figure out who the character was, 
all the logistical elements of like, how do you tell that story? How do you end up in a place where that letter is? You know, how do you do that? And then that's where the kind of fun, that's where the filmmaking comes in, where you say, what kind of a story do I want to tell next? But the sort of, the, the kind of deeper part of it of why are you doing this? You know, I realized it's about, you know, mortality, but about what are you going to, who are you going to be when you face that mortality? So, I mean, and so the sea in that case, I guess, I mean, you've, you've talked in the past about you, you've, you've sailed through a storm and, and experienced a little yes, tiny once. fraction of that. <laughs> but it is, I mean, and then I, I, I did it once because I'm not a very adventurous, I'm sort of emotionally adventurous, but I am, uh, but I, you know, I'm not a person who skydives or does, you know, all of that stuff. But so I did that once because I had such a curiosity and I will, and, I, and then we got caught in this horrible storm, you know, days from land. And I will never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of in the same way that, you know, zombies in zombie movies represent just the inevitability of death. They're slow moving, but they're all going to get you in the end. Yeah. It's a little bit the same here. If you're, if you're out on the ocean long enough, yeah. it's going to get you. I mean, it's no, know, absolutely. It's a, it's a and, and another thing we realized about it was right on that is that sailing in a weird way, especially in America, but it's, it's seen as this sort of almost cartoonish rich man sport, which it is to a certain extent, but but it actually is very middle class. This boat I chose on a on purpose. In a lot of the New York press and, and, and U.S. press, they were calling it a yacht, which it sort of is, but a guy who owns a real yacht would laugh at that being considered a yacht. That, that boat cost about $28,000 when it was brand new in 1979, which was about very much on purpose about the cost of a, of a luxury car, of a BMW. Um, and the boat now, if you bought this a little bit used, is, is still about $28,000, which is the cost of a Toyota. So, so this boat and this guy was always supposed to represent sort of a middle class or upper middle class guy of Redford's era and, mm. and, and you know, that kind of generation. And so I wanted him to kind of be this everyman, but I... Choosing sailing is a bit odd because in the U.S. it's not like an everyman activity. But I realized that and, – and, and somebody else kind of brought this to me and then I realized it was something I had thought about but I almost didn't really know it when you were doing it. But sailing up until sort of when Redford was born, you know, 75 years ago, was the way most goods and services in the entire world for the last 5,000 years were transmitted. Yeah. It was – human beings way of exploring and of actually expanding and the first people to walk on England came here you know in a boat essentially and and the fact that only in Redford's lifetime essentially is it now just a complete antique that serves no real purpose besides sort of enjoyment or exploration you know for fun and you know the fact that somewhere in all of us you know, as humans, we realize that the sea and that having to cross an ocean is the only reason we sort of expanded as a species um, is kind of cool because that, that allows it to kind of take this more metaphorical kind of, you know, larger kind of thing, which I think people know that inside, which I was always afraid, are people going to understand? Do they really think I'm just making a movie about a old guy on a boat? You know, which I am, <laughs> certainly. But I was hoping that a broader audience would obviously be able to take that and, and sort of think about other things in their life. I mean, the whole point of this movie is that in the third act, 
you become him, you know, as an audience member. And that, you know, while we know certain things about this character, most of his biography is sort of left in question. And mm. I did that on purpose so that if you knew he had 12 kids and was bankrupt, that would be all you would sort of be thinking about. But hopefully he becomes you in a way. It's interesting. I, I know that uh, you wrote this um, for a sort of pool, I guess, of, of older actors, A-list actors who can get this a film of, like this made. Yeah. So you wrote it necessarily with Redford, Nicholson, Eastwood. Did you? Did yeah, you I have sort of, I never allowed myself to zero in on who that was going to be because I okay. didn't want them in the writing. I wanted to be writing the movie that I wanted to make. Um, but you're certainly thinking... I, I knew it had to be an older actor. That was what I found fascinating is that someone of that age refusing to give up seemed fascinating. And so the second part... Do you have, well, the second part was, did you think about other people like, say, Gene Hackman bringing him out of retirement, yeah, luring, luring I mean, him out I mean, with this? A, I hope someone can get him to do one more. Uh, his last film on record right now is Welcome to Mooseport. Correct. And when you have a career like Gene Hackman's, I hope that someone will get him to do <laughs> one more film besides Welcome to Mooseport. No offense to whoever made Welcome to Mooseport, but it probably was not the best work of that person's career <laughs> either. Um, but once I had sort of met or seen Redford in person, which was at the Sundance Film Festival, he gave this welcoming talk um, to all the filmmakers, which he does every year. So he's done that talk, you know, to probably 4,000 filmmakers over the time of the festival. Um, but in the middle of that, what I started to realize was that he was actually representing the version of the movie that I had already written, as opposed to if there was a Jack Nicholson version of the mm. movie, um, he could have been wonderful at kind of talking to himself and, uh, you know, and, and kind of filling you in on his life by just being Jack Nick, you know, the way he can kind of do that. You could imagine Jack Nicholson kind of walking around that boat, you know, motherfucker for this, you know, kind of letting that apart. But that isn't the version I had written. I had sort of the version in my head, I was actually in the middle of writing it at that time, was the version that an actor like Robert Redford could bring, which is where I don't talk to myself. As you guys can tell from this podcast, I, I, I talk very quickly and I talk a lot. But when I'm alone, I don't. I, I sort of, I think things, but, I, I, but I'm not a person who talks to myself. And in a way, the version that I already had on paper or was halfway through getting on paper was Redford, you know, that he could bring me that. And, and, um, and that's pretty cool, you know, when you see, I'm in the process of it right now on my next film, you know, realizing that even though there are certain actors who, for many other reasons, feel perfect and are the person, you know, in a way, or, or, or bring you the best version of that, you got to stay true to, like, you have to cast the person that is what you wrote, you know, or you got to go back and rethink the whole thing. But, but there is something to be said when you come across the person that is that version that was in your head, that's a gift. And if you don't jump at it, you're going to probably be kicking yourself. 
just I mean we haven't got much time left but just on your next project is that still a most violent year is that it is Bardem Chastain is that correct um we'll see part okay. of what I was just saying was uh we're in a process of trying to figure out um you know I've been working with Javier Bardem for seven or eight months on that film and um you know the script is what I've learned about myself as a writer is that my best versions of my writing are, um, I won't say the first pass, but I don't reinvent stories once I'm sort of in the, some do, some people, some writers do, and it's a wonderful process for them. But what I realize about myself kind of visually, I'm collecting scenes and ideas and moments, um, over a year or two year period and I'm just tucking them away and then I get to a point where my brain actually has that film literally in my head and and all the writing is um, dialogue comes to me quite I won't say easily because then I'll never write another line of dialogue again but <laughs> but it it is a free flowing experience once I know who the character is what they're trying to get to and what the movie is the dialogue, I can just go and it can happen in a very kind of freeform way. But the plotting and the actual kind of construction of the film is something that takes a long time. But then when I sit down, it's like this kind of intense experience and it, and Margin Call was written in four days, you know, but I had had that movie bouncing around for a year, kind of building it. And so um, what I've learned about myself as a writer is that that first explosion um, when I sit down for a week or two, that is oftentimes my best work. And, and, and so to go back and kind of question that and kind of rewrite it um, could be dangerous for me. And so Mr. Bardem and I are, are, are in the middle of kind of figuring that out and, and we'll, see where it, uh, we'll see where it lands. But, um, but the good news is I'm at a place in my career for the first time where there are amazing actors who, you know, want to work with me, which has not always been the case, I can promise you. Um, so it's an embarrassment of riches. And um, in a way, whoever ends up in that movie, um, I can almost say assuredly will be the right person because um, I have, uh, you know, a wonderful sort of uh, choice. Hackman. Make it happen. Hackman. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Um, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you. Now it's time for movie reviews. We won't be back until January the 10th, so we're going to have to race through a couple of weeks' worth of movies here, and there is a lot coming out over the next few weeks. Let's start with a big release that opened on Wednesday, the return of Ron, Brick, Champ, Brian, and the gang in Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. Alistair. Now, before we do this, let's go over a few ground rules, okay? <laughs> Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. Well, obviously. Well, obviously. And that's it. Now let's do this! Wow. Chris, I think you're on the camp of actually really liking this film. Yeah, I put this in my top ten of the year. Um, I am not. Okay. Shall we... Shall, I, we, shall we do this? I've got a, uh, a bed... A bed... A bed knob thing. We don't have a lot of time. So, why don't you just admit you're wrong, and we'll move on. No. I'm going to back Ali up on this one. Yeah, i got a sense I'm going to be alone on this one. Oh, James White's looking... James White loved it. it. Have you seen it? I have not seen You've it. You've not seen it. Okay, great. You're you're in my camp. Yes, I, I I think it's brilliant. I think this has all the same flaws of the first movie and has all the same strengths of the first movie. And I think in time it will be revealed. People, because I saw this happen in the first movie. People poo pooed it. They poo pooed it. 
And then they, they came crawling back a couple of years later and went, Hey, Chris, you were right. You're a visionary genius, man. I went, thanks. Um, and um, and they love it, and it became quotable. And I think this movie has more, of the same, has more of the flaws, and the flaws are bigger. It's not as good as the first movie, but it is very, very, very funny. For the record, I did not poo-poo the first movie, nor did it take me two years to realise it was good. I loved the first movie. I still love the first movie. This is... This does, you're right, have some very funny moments in it. Um, there, there is no question that you will laugh at some point and indeed points in this movie. My problem is that they are diluted by the sheer amount of faff around them and the complete lack of filmmaking discipline on the on the part of the director and, and the, you know, the, the, the producer. I feel like if this had been about 30 minutes shorter we would all have loved it a lot more because there is good stuff in there but there's just so much just boredom between funny bits and just craziness that doesn't quite work on any real level. In the first one they were they were pretty, you know, they stripped a lot of that out. They made an entire spare film with the excess. You could have done the same kind of thing here. Just take all of that out and make another film if you want it. They are actually going to make an, uh, another film. Great. Then with Take some of this. No, they're gonna, it's going to be longer. I would love to see a director's cut of this that was 45 minutes shorter. It reminds me a bit of what I've been moaning about with Peter Jackson recently, where Hobbit the Desolation Smag is a great film. I really enjoyed it. It's got so many set pieces that I'm going to remember forever. But I also feel like you can do an extended edition, and you're one of the few people, Adam McKay, Peter Jackson, put them in the same party together, uh, who can go, right, here's the lean, mean cinema release cut, and here's the everything in a bag, bits and bobs and bubble bath, everything cut you can do that too they he has that power but he's not taking it my biggest problem wasn't with when it hit because when it hits it really does hit and i was hooting like i was really laughing there's a bit with champ kind uh which i i just have i'm a sucker for him uh, and he makes me laugh a lot where i was genuinely just like choking but there were also moments when i was there were moments in the screening where a joke was was made and it just didn't land that was not my experience in my screening i do feel like comedy as ever is very personal it's very how you feel about it it's very you you can say that's a good or bad joke and be both right and entirely wrong at the same mm. time so there is that that it does have its moments but it has whole sections of the plot which i would have removed at the same time well the, the interesting thing i don't disagree with you guys i think it's flabby i think it's overlong i think there are whole scenes that could be cut there are certainly scenes that could be cut down quite substantially i think sometimes jokes just don't work bricks first joke basically I won't spoil it but it goes on far far too long it's pitched at the wrong level for me and it's a little bit uncomfortable watching that scene um, about that I will say no more judge for yourselves when you see it but when it hits and for me it hit very very frequently it made me laugh like few films have this year for me it's the funniest film of the year um, even more so than uh, Alpha Papa or The World's End um, and uh, it didn't disappoint in that in that regard. Helen thinks the lunacy didn't work. For me, it did. There's a song about a shark. We discussed this actually on the mm. podcast and interview later on, uh, which uh, Adam McKay says is almost the dividing line for people who either really like the film or really don't like the film. It may be nominated for best original song at the Oscars. I would love it if that happened. I don't think it will. But uh, and, you know, for me, that sort of stuff worked. There's some amazing detours and uh, long errors mm. that, that, that do work. I mean, listen, I'm not against lunacy, just for the record. Some of the some of the stuff there, there's implications that, you know, Brick is a time traveller and stuff like that. And yes. it's, just, it's just throwaway comments like that that I think are brilliant. I think yeah. that's absolutely great, great, great stuff. But just too much of it was throw it at the wall and see if it sticks, and it did not. I, I do agree. If it, if it lost, maybe not half an hour, 20 minutes, 
I think we'd be talking about this in the same breath as the first movie. But at the same time, I've had this experience with pretty much all of the McKay Farrell films. Uh, I've watched, you know, Step Brothers, which I now love. I watched and didn't quite get first time around. And I've got a feeling that with repeat viewings, this one yeah, will reveal its charms to the world. I will say one criticism I do have of it is um, there is an emphasis more so on Brick. I can absolutely see why that's the case. It's very much Ron's story. That remains the case. Uh, Brick gets a B story, if you will, uh, given how big a star Steve Carell has become in the interim. That's not a surprise. And given how big Brick has become as an icon, again, that's not a surprise. But what it means is that Champ and Brian Fantana, especially Brian Fantana, get sidelined in this movie. There's not enough uh, Paul Rudd or Brian Fantana for me in this film. uh, Is there ever? which, Which is a bit of a shame. But there you go. Three stars we gave Anchorman to the Legend Continues. We gave the first movie the same rating. Uh, it is, as ever, as I say on the podcast, a recommendation. I would go higher. Helen would go lower. Say la fee. Go and judge for yourselves if you haven't already. Uh, also out today is American Hustle. Again, we must stress, only in London. We Cheeky Londoners get it first. Uh, what do we make of this one? This is David O. Russell. People saying a uh, bit of a play for Oscar glory. A bit of a naked play for Oscar glory. Uh, what do we what do we make of this one? I think this film is well acted. I think it is well directed. I think it is fascinating. I think it's funny. I think it's slick. I think it's all kinds of good stuff. Well, thanks, loads man. loads of great things to say about it. I think it is a solid night out in the cinema. If you want to buy a ticket and go and watch it, you will not be disappointed. And yet, at the same time, because it's about con artists and it's because it's about this 1970s ab scam thing where they essentially used a fake shake to lure in politicians and others uh, into accepting bribes for what if you actually get it, get down to it are, are good projects that they want to do which is kind of luring them in in a kind of entrapment situation who's they? who's they they are a group of FBI agents and two con artists played by Amy Adams and Christian Bale Christian Bale is having a huge prosthetic belly that he carries around he's got a huge blubbery belly and the worst comb over you've seen this side of Call My Bluff it's only partly a prosthetic he put on a fair amount of weight for this film which you know he so often does I'm essentially thinking of a specific shot where he is wearing a prosthetic uh, you know oh, a prosthetic okay. uh, because it's just him sitting down and listening to this record and just kind of waving his hands like some kind of magician so they get kind of nabbed by Bradley Cooper's FBI agent and then get drawn in and to, to get off their charge they have to work with him and their gag their game is to use this fake shake to lure in these politicians and other folk because these people are con artists, because they're all dealers in insincerity and confidence and all that stuff, it is hard to get into the characters and want to root for them or not root for them. It's hard to know where you are for obvious reasons. And because of that, the whole slickness of the project and the film made me feel a lack of connection to it. At the same time, people like Jennifer Lawrence steal every scene they're in, and it is bloody good fun. Yeah, she is absolutely fantastic. You know, she plays Christian Bale's wife. Obviously, Amy Adams is his girlfriend. Yes, there is tension there. <laughs> um, and and she kind of just, you know, gives everything a sense of kind of, I don't know, just energy that I think some of the rest of the film has. I think because there's a lot of plot to get through here and a lot of characters to juggle and a lot of stuff to explain, um, sometimes it's it's really in her scenes that you actually get to have the most fun in a weird way and she's one of the few people in the film who isn't trying to con someone particularly it, it is it is a good film I, I don't really want to say it is bad uh, but um, like you say there's a lot of plot to get through this is based on truth it's based on truth it very is, loosely it's kind of caricatured versions of the real people involved um, but it's well worth looking up the actual story of this because it was a very big deal at the time I have to say I 
I was a little bit more negative towards it. I found it awfully muddled in places. I felt it went from it was aiming for sincerity in places and then madcap zany stuff in other places and the tones never quite melded, which I think might be a part of writing very quickly on the fly, trying to come up with new stuff, trying to change things around. Uh, one thing I did like would be uh, Louis C.K., who plays Bradley Cooper's boss at the FBI and he's basically a shell of a man that wants him to behave and wants him to sort of just do it by the book and Bradley Cooper essentially bullies him into going along with his crazy scheme and Louis K is brilliant you actually end up sympathizing more with him than you ever do with Bradley Cooper and he's just the picture of frustration and he's just great but on the whole I thought the film was just a little bit too muddled for me. It does have about four or five very funny moments. Uh, now I come to think about it, there's one in particular, Lucy K, which uh, which is very funny. But yes, I think this is a good film. I would I would definitely recommend it to people mm. asking me what they should see in the cinema. Fantastic. Uh, so we gave that four stars. Yeah, four stars from Rick and Hustle. Um, maybe in the Oscar race. Who knows? We'll I see. think it'll be in there for for performances. I'm not sure if it'll be up for best film, but you know, it's a very strong year this year. That's no that's no diss to say that no. it might not be in there. Okay, Amy okay. Adams is a good shout for me. Uh, also out today is the Harry Hill movie, which is a big screen debut of Harry Hill of Harry Hill's TV burp fame. Uh, it has not screened for critics. Make of that what you will. Um, it's a bit of a shame if it turns out to be not that great because I'd heard good things. Yeah, we, we shall see. To. We shall see. Uh, moving on to next week, December 27th. Uh, although I think films open on Boxing Day in this country now. Um, uh, first off, we have Ben Stiller's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. What do we make of that? Well, this is uh, Ben Stiller's return to directing after a little bit of a break uh, since his last one. Um, it is obviously based on the same uh, short story that inspired the Danny Kaye film back in the 40s. And it is the story of uh, an average office worker with a, a very, you know, restrained life uh, and you get to you get to hear some reasons why his life is the way it is and has developed the way it is um, who lives a lot of the time in his daydreams uh, particularly about his co-worker who's played by Kristen Wiig um, Cheryl um, who he has developed a crush on and uh, there's a rather charming scene early on which establishes a lot about him where he basically uh, is on eHarmony expressly to try and chat her up because he hasn't got the courage to do it in real life and has trouble sending a wink and has to call their customer services representative and, and basically that becomes his sort of best friend who's almost kind of calling him as he, as he then uh, gets sent on some adventures because Life magazine is where he works as a photography uh, director, I guess, is closing down. Uh, his job is to uh, get the the picture, which is described as the quintessence of life by its photographer, Sean O'Connell, played by Sean Penn. Um, and the picture's gone missing. He has to go to find Sean Penn in order to to get this picture there for the final ever issue of life. Uh, the problem is that this superstar photographer is always travelling around the world and so Mitty himself finally sets off on an adventure going first to Greenland and then on from there uh, in an effort to, to track this guy down, track down this, this important picture and maybe, you know, um, it's going to sound really cheesy now, track down something more important as well. Drugs. Well, I meant like, you know, Boots. life, uh, like Boots. a zest for life. Well, actually, I guess indirectly, boobs will figure. I really love this film. I thought it was very sweet, very charming. Not enough films like this are made anymore. It is Forrest Gumpish. That's certainly true. And with that being said, it is cute and cutesy and is a little self-indulgent on the character. It's himself. He's very much the guy with a problem and everything revolves around him. But it is so sweet and, and wry and 
and funny and i really like ben stiller as a, as a presence and i really like the way he took this it's it's it feels a little bit like it could be a very good Sigur Ross uh, music video at times, <laughs> but I mean that with a lot of of, of warmth, really. Mm. Um, you have, visually, it's a bit of a it's a treat. standout as well. But it's a gorgeous, departure yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah. You could, they go to Iceland and they go to Greenland and they go to all sorts of places, and you get to to see those vistas and experience them. There's a great moment with uh, with a uh, shipping boat, a uh, shipping boat as opposed to a non-shipping boat, and uh, it's it's kind of lovely, really, and. I just felt a bit fuzzy after yeah, watching it. it. It's a very fuzzy film. You won't necessarily remember much about it the next morning in some ways. Um, in mm. terms of, I, I mean, it, you know, images stick with you, I think, more than maybe characters or plot do, certainly for me. Maybe, yeah. But, um, but it, it, it is very lovely and warming and very appropriate to the season in a strange way. It's by no means a Christmas film. There isn't a Christmas tree, you know, anywhere in it. But it just does feel, um, it just feels encouraging in yeah. a gentle sort of a way. And and it did make me want to go on holiday to Iceland with immediate effect. It makes <laughs> you walk out of the cinema going, yeah, okay, let's go do something. Uh, and I like that. And uh, it's it's warm and cuddly and all that kind of good stuff. One thing I will say is this movie's going to survive by word of mouth. I think this isn't one of those films that's just going to blow up in the box office. So he's hoping it becomes a bit of a sleeper hit because so. um, we need to encourage films like this from my point of view. We do, and I th- but I think you know your mum will like it, your granny will like it. You can bring the whole family, uh, and it and it won't bore kids too much either. So I think it's 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 a good kind of family film for over Christmas. We gave it four stars. It's great. It won't bore kids too much either. Stick that in your poster. <laughs> uh, that's four stars for the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, let's move on now to Chasey Chander's All Is Lost, as we set it up earlier on. Stars Robert Redford as a sailor trying desperately to stay alive on the high seas. James. Yeah, I I absolutely love this. Um, I started a few months ago, and it's. It's absolutely amazing, given that it is just Robert Redford on his Todd, and there is literally about, I'd say, about ten lines of dialogue in it. There's there's an opening narration, and then after that, there is two, maybe two or three words, two of which are the F word, uh, brilliantly used, incidentally. And it's it's how he copes with this situation. He's he's as you said out on a solo sailing voyage. His boat hits a shipping container, starts to sink. He has to get into a, a life raft, and I won't say any more beyond that. But it's how he copes with everything it's how you understand so much about the man even though he's saying nothing nobody's saying anything about him you get it all through what he does and his eyes and redford is absolutely brilliant the score never goes for that cliched sort of it's going he's going to survive it's going to be wonderful and i i thought it was brilliant I think what's really interesting about this as well is it it reminded me in some ways of something like captain phillips or gravity where you've got you know, a person all alone against the elements. Um, but unlike Captain Phillips, I mean, in Captain Phillips, it's based on a true story. So you kind of know the ending and it's tense despite that. In this one, you have absolutely no idea where it's going. The opening narration maybe gives you a clue. But apart from that, you really don't know where you're going. And and I thought that made it even more tense, if that's possible. It's been a brilliant year for for this kind of edge of your seat cinema. And, and, and this one in particular, as you've said, I absolutely agree, you know, with nothing to work with, they make something incredibly tense. I don't want to bust open a spoiler here, but has Sundance learnt to swim? He he has. Yes, he's, he's, he's all right. Don't worry about him. He does actually swim at certain points. Okay. That's one of the great things about the film, actually, is that he is so capable. I mean, he is, you know, he doesn't panic when the, when the first thing goes wrong, which is that his boat runs aground on a floating shipping container and, 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 and springs a lake. He just, he very, very calmly just goes through the steps of what you need to do with the leak in the boat. He is 
brilliantly stoic and I think that makes it all the more effective when you know the problems keep mounting against him I agree um, I thought this film was fantastic I saw it in Cannes was blown away by it and uh, I wrote the Empire Review we gave it five stars uh, so I won't bang on too much more about it here suffice to say that Redford is fantastic Chasey Jandor as well uh, I think proved himself very much the real deal here uh, do go and check it out or hey wait for it to come out in DVD and triple bill it with Gravity and Captain Phillips because that will rock your socks off Five stars for All Is Lost. Uh, Keanu Reeves' much-delayed 47 Ronin is also out on Boxing Day. We hadn't seen it at time of recording. Helen is about to scuttle off uh, to see it. Uh, So are you writing the review? Uh, Yeah. Well, why not? Uh, Our Empire review will be up by the time you listen. No, it won't be up by the time you listen to this podcast, but it will be up in time for Boxing Day. So check that one out. Uh, Moving on to January 3rd, uh, we have Mandela Long Walk to Freedom of course, uh, which is about, well, it's a life story of the late, great Nelson Mandela, uh, played, by this, uh, played in this movie by Idris Elba, with uh, Naomi Harris as his wife, Winnie. Yes, this is, uh, so it's based on the book. If you've read the book, you, you know, a lot of the beats and so on will be familiar to you. Uh, if you don't know anything about Mandela, it's a it's a reasonable introduction, I would say. It's a, it's a good introduction to the man's life. Uh, the problem is that it really does try to span his entire life. It, it really starts with him as a child uh, in the country, uh, you know, going through the sort of the first rites of manhood as a, as a very young teenager. Um, and then, and goes all the way up to his release from prison and his uh, election as president of South Africa. Now, that's... That is a huge time span. And and it's not like he was just sitting around doing nothing for that time. So it's very much kind of trying to set up periods of his life in essentially a 30-second scene. Now, in its, to its credit, it doesn't go for a lot of montages, but it does have to try and convey a huge amount of, uh, of information in a short, you know, comparatively short running time. Um, it's helped by great performances from from Elba and Harris in particular, and the whole cast is pretty solid. Harris but, but those in particular, or, or Elba and both. Harris oh, okay. Comet in particular. Okay, right. um, but I think that you know it, it just tries to do maybe too much. I almost would have liked to have seen. I thought the most interesting piece of the film for me, and we can't really have spoilers in the life of Nelson Mandela. So even though it's late on, I'm going to say is when he is technically still in prison, but being released daily to talk to the leaders of the country about how to move forward, how to move the country forward out of apartheid. That is a fascinating dynamic. Just that setup is is absolutely astonishing. Um, but that's like a five-minute scene. And and that, to me, that's the crux of the matter. That's where, where Mandela proves himself as Mandela, in a way. And, and it would have been, you know, that might have been a, an interesting thing to focus on or focus on, have a really kind of low-budget piece in the prison with his fellow ANC prisoners discussing that. And that might have been an interesting way. There's a, t- a hint of sort of the tension that developed in their relationships as he was increasingly singled out. Maybe that's where you focus. But I feel like there needed to be focus for this to be a truly great film rather than just uh, a wart, you know, just a, a quick biopic. I have a few things to say about this as well. I thought it was actually pretty good for what it, for what it is. It's, it's, it's overreaching horribly in its own way. But at the same time, it's a good kind of piecemeal way of, of getting into Nelson Mandela's life. It's more of an introduction rather than anything else. Cliff Notes. Yeah. In a way, we keep saying this, but this would have made an absolutely excellent um, seven-part, eight-part HBO series where you had a different actor maybe doing a different section of his life, a bit like that Bob Dylan movie. But it is, it is, there's a whole chunk of his life that the part of his life that I find most fascinating is when he's a child and he is, which you don't see at all in the film. You just meet him when he's about in his early thirties, uh, where he he is a lawyer 
but he was born uh, to the son of a chief in a tribe and is 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 just how does he get from there to becoming a trained lawyer who can work with white judges and, and do all that stuff there's a whole section of that part of his life which is done with a little montage mm. and that is for me an indication of how this film has to make sacrifices I think it does for what it's worth a very good job with it I think Idris Elba is good really good there are times in the film you totally forgot he doesn't actually look that much like Mandela towards the end especially with the old age makeup which is done very well and uh, the way he walks in the gate it's it's very good um, so yes it's it's a, an impressive film but not perfect and we give uh, Mandela Long Walk to Freedom three stars. It will be out on January 3rd. Also out on January 3rd is the OIP comedy Las Vegas, which sees Michael Douglas, Robert De Niro, Kevin Klein, and Morgan Freeman, who of course also played Mandela a few years ago, uh, team up to mm. go to Las Vegas uh, for a massive stag do. Uh, it's Last of Summer Wine meets <laughs> The Hangover. What do we make of this one? Helen? Yeah, kind of is. I mean, to be honest, right? This is, you know, from from the plot setup, you pretty much know exa- exactly everything that's going to happen. This is not a film that is packed with plot surprises uh, galore. You can pretty much see everything that's coming before it gets there. However, what is good about it is that you have uh, four uh, incredibly accomplished actors. I mean, with with great support from the likes of Mary Steenburgen as well. But these four actors on just just chilling and just having a great time together clearly and really enjoying each other's company and just riffing and they're very very easy with the comedy there's a great sense of camaraderie between them um they do, none of them have anything to prove and you just get the sense that they quite enjoyed you know hanging out in vegas with each other probably staying in a very very nice hotel and and just doing something that's easily within their capabilities and so there are you know a lot of laughs and and a good sense of fun it's not going to change the world but it's it's thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. I saw this. I paid to see this with my own money when I was in uh, LA recently. Uh, I had loose ends uh, for afternoon, so I went to see it with the the, the Blue Rinse Brigade at uh, <laughs> at a cinema in LA, and they were loving it. Mm. They were loving it. It's like they'd never seen old people on the screen before. It was like a mirror or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I quite liked it as well. It's just it's just really fun. It's yeah. a fun movie. It's confident. It's slick. It's not at all uh, nasty or mean-spirited the way the Hangover movies are. This is... Uh, uh, and the chemistry between the four guys uh, who are all playing childhood friends who then go back to Vegas, who go go to Vegas years later, um, is, is great. It's great to see Kevin Klein in the comedy again. Yes, definitely. It's been too damn long, uh, and he's very, very funny. He's probably the funniest of the four. Michael Douglas gets more of the straight role. He's the he's the groom who may or may not be having second thoughts about his marriage to his much younger uh, fiance. Uh, De Niro's De Niro's in good form in this, and, and Morgan Freeman's. Yeah. Uh, they're all very, very good. Morgan well. Freeman's yeah. surprisingly funny. I think he often yeah. is is again, you know, typecast as a stra- as, as a straight actor, and and here he is very, very fu- funny. He gets many of the many of the best lines. I mean, it's. Not not exactly enlightened in its attitude to women this film but it is uh, it is very fun as far as it goes yeah um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people race out to see it but uh, this is a yeah. fun thing to watch on DVD on a rainy afternoon three stars that's right for Las Vegas which has done well enough in the States to possibly warrant a sequel and I wouldn't mind actually seeing these four back together again at some point what in Bangkok in Bangkok, yeah. Absolutely. Do it all over again. Just yeah. do it all over again. And yes, that is a spoiler. None of them die in this one. So and let's move on then. There's another movie coming out on January 3rd, uh, which is Paranormal Activity, the marked ones. It's a spin-off of the Paranormal, uh, sorry, Paranormal Activity franchise. Uh, we haven't seen it at the time of recording 
uh, but do check the Empire website uh, around the time and there should be a review up there. Uh, that's not quite it though. Anchorman 2 The Legend Continues is in cinemas right now as you heard. As you also heard, I think it's a cracker, Helen. And uh, I spoke to its director, Adam McKay, and its producing jump, Judd Apatow, when they came into London just the other week. Enjoy. I am delighted to welcome to the Empire Podcast, Adam McKay, writer-director of Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, and Judd Apatow, producer of Anchorman 2. Thank Hello. you for having us. Pleasure to be here. How are you guys feeling? Because the, uh, the premiere was last night. Little the worse for wear, or are we okay? You know, I, uh, I got to bed pretty early, but I did the, the beautiful move of having uh, a couple beers and then a couple glasses of wine. So uh, feeling a little sick. Okay. But, uh, for breakfast, or was this just... Uh, for breakfast. Okay. I always have uh, a bottle of wine for breakfast. That's what my doctor <laughs> told me to do. He's not a real doctor. It's a basketball nickname doctor. Um, uh, but it was a great premiere. No, it was an amazing turnout. Rowdy crowd, most of them in costume. Wow. And uh, from what we heard, the movie played quite well. Oh, you don't hang around. You don't. You don't watch. We it. stay for usually a bit, but uh, we introed three different screenings. They had multiple theaters going. So, uh, the exciting thing last night was we actually had the full cast and Judd go touch the audience before several of the screenings. No joke. They <laughs> did all did you uh, heal anyone, or was it just uh, just to put yourself out there? Well, I have uh, some open sores that I I, I laid on people. <laughs> yeah, he's in front. You can't see him now. He does have open sores. <laughs> yeah, weeping actually right now. But this this movie, we, we were talking about him. Uh, we talked about this before actually, uh, in terms of there being an uh, an alternate cut of this film, and that's actually going to happen. That's going to be released. That's going to. Yeah, we we literally last night were talking with the head of marketing, Josh Greenstein, who's amazing, about the idea of doing a, a very small theatrical release with this alternative cut. So it will have uh, three to 400 new jokes on it. Uh, basically, every joke in the movie is replaced with an alternative joke. I think there's maybe five or six that we have to repeat because we had nothing to bridge moments. Mm. And it'll be released on DVD and Blu-ray. And, and looks like we might do a very small little promotional theatrical thing, which could be a lot of fun. In the U.S. only or over here? What do you think? I don't know. It's a good question. I would think they would do London as well. We love some Ron Burgundy over here. You can yeah. absolutely do that. That'd, do that'd London, be, uh... Dublin, and Sydney, and then do a couple theaters in the States. Yeah. So this isn't quite Wake Up Ron Burgundy Part 2. Is this uh, the same plot, different jokes, or is it a completely different plot? Or how, same exact plot. Okay. Physically the same movie. Just every time there's a spoken joke, we replaced it. <laughs> and added riffs and cut scenes too. There's a big musical number in there as well. Wow! And John, how involved are you with this sort of, with the with the, the shaping of this movie? Not just in the uh, in the writing, but also in the editing as well as producer. Uh, well, I'm kind of a fresh set of uh, eyes and ears at each stage. So when they're talking about the outline, we'll get together and kick it around, and then I look at you know the early long drafts, and we you know debate what seems to be working and not working and then it, then it's you know it's fun uh, when we get into previews for, for all of us to watch it and and try to understand what's working and what's not working mm -hmm. because with this type of, of comedy you know sometimes your favorite jokes are the ones that don't get laughs and so you have to decide which ones to keep in because you know for decades it will be your favorite joke <laughs> right, but you yeah. want most of it to tear down the house but you but you know there's almost a sensibility that's the last sketch on Saturday Night Live. There's always that great <laughs> yeah. last weird sketch yeah. that Adam and Will would do all the time that was so funny. And you want that in the movie as well as the stuff that's incredibly crowd-pleasing. Mm. And uh, how did you get involved with Anchorman in the first place? Did Will and Adam come to you years ago and go, we've got this thing we want to do? We're not... Uh, well, we met uh, years ago. Adam did a, a, a rewrite on a, 
on a script that I was trying to develop for Chris Farley that I'd never got off the ground. And, uh, and then uh, Will, I had met with Will and developed a script for Will that also didn't get off the ground. That was a, a phase of my career where nothing got off the ground. <laughs> and, uh, but I was trying. And, uh, and then Will did a, an episode of Undeclared, where he, it was this TV show about college that we did, where he played a, a meth addict who, if you paid him 50 bucks, he would write your term paper. And uh, so, so uh, around that time, and I don't remember if it was right before or right after, uh, you know, they came to me and said, you know, we feel like this is getting pretty close. Can you help us try to get it made? And I had a deal at DreamWorks, and uh, so we, we took it over there. Okay. Judd's, uh, uh, when he came in, too, we had written a version of this script of the first Anchorman that was so insane it had chased Paul Thomas Anderson out of producing for the rest of his career. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Uh, it had a, a lot of just crazy, crazy stuff in it. Paul Thomas Anderson looked at it. He said, I, I honestly don't know how to even give notes on this, but I kind of love it. I don't think I should produce anymore. <laughs> we then went out. Judd joined us. We went out with the script thinking, oh, we can still make this. And every single studio and financier in Hollywood said no. Mm. except for DreamWorks. Mike DeLuca at DreamWorks wanted to develop it. Yeah. And we had to rewrite it. We had to ground it a lot more and give it more of an emotional relationship through line. As crazy as it ended up being, that's the more grounded version. So Judd was extremely helpful with that. And uh, David Russell was an executive producer on the, on the first one. Yeah. There was a lot of high-end talent trying to crack Anchorman. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, David O. Russell, Paul Thomas Anderson, and then finally Judd Apatow was the producer that stuck so how crazy was it it was pretty insane basically the whole idea was still the idea of the first woman news anchor yeah. but halfway through the movie they fly to a news conference and i can't remember where it is like honolulu and on the way they wreck the plane and it becomes like alive with all anchors all male anchors and one female anchor and the plane that they hit to wreck was carrying baboons and martial arts weapons <laughs> And the baboons arm themselves with the martial arts weapons, and there's giant battle sequences that morphed into anime. And I don't know what in God's name we were thinking. I mean, <laughs> it became Lord. <clears throat> it became like Lord of the Flies with anchor people. Wow, that sounds amazing. So if you ever do Anchorman three, that's that should come back. Should I mean that's just that's just we ready have to kicked go. it around. Oh, I think yeah. so. I, I'd love to see just a pure action movie like yeah. Contiki. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're kicking ideas around for this movie I was uh, speaking to Will Ferrell recently and he said that uh, one iteration had the guys go to space so uh, was that just literally an idea that you spitballed at one point or were there other ideas I, it, it was one of those ideas that could never go beyond the sentence what if they go to space mm. the second you would start talking about it it would just immediately was so thin but always saying what if they went to space made us laugh <laughs> And then we go, all right, well, how would they go to space? You'd be like, well, that's terrible. That's terrible. What about this? Oh, that's terrible. So it would be like gravity. It would have been gravity. Bring Tamlin. He would have trouble as he switched pods adjusting to the, the <laughs> Russian controllers. Would have been like silent running with Bruce Dern. <laughs> would have just been a lonely champ kind tending to plants. Um, yeah, I don't know how we would have made that work. And we had another idea, too, that we kicked around. We actually wrote, which was the idea that the owner of the 24-hour news station was building an uh, undersea resort uh, right. hotel and that uh, it, they all went down there and Ron had covered up the story about how the glass was faulty. 
and it had a game reserve on it. So, <laughs> yeah. So that I, sounds as crazy as the first script for Anchorman. Not, I, I, no I don't quite. know how to express how crazy that first script was. So even this wasn't as crazy as the first script. It was. Uh, it actually made a little bit of sense. Like we we considered it. I mean, we read it. We talked about it. Like you read it. What did you think? It wasn't completely insane, right? Uh, on the mountain? Uh, no, the, uh, the underwater, underwater resort. It just seemed very, very expensive. <laughs> yeah. And claustrophobic, because then it would all be And like, potentially underwater. could not work, too. Yeah. Like, it could be one of those things where we don't really want to see all this action. Yeah. We want to see what's going on with the characters. Yeah. So we instead, we, uh, we did something a little more conservative. We uh, had Ron Burgundy uh, sing a love song to a shark. <laughs> so... That's, and Shelly yeah. Winters isn't alive, so you really can't do that kind That's of true. Irwin <laughs> Allen work without her. Yeah, true. It's true. And you said the uh, the the, the, uh, the shark song, the Adobe uh, song, is a, almost a litmus test for people, for fans of the original, isn't it? Yeah, I've noticed that the fans who are more casual, like friends of mine, have come to screenings who just like comedy and like, yeah, first Anchorman's hilarious. They'll say to me like, God, it's really funny. I did not like that shark part. <laughs> and then friends of mine who are hardcore comedy fans, like, you know, our friend Tommy Workola, the Norwegian yeah. director is a yeah. hardcore comedy fan. He's like, the shark part was the best part of the entire film. So, you know, that seems to be the dividing line. Of- <laughs> I, my daughter, I said, what was your favorite part? And she was like, Dobie the shark. I'm like, I've raised you well. <laughs> <laughs> Say my 13-year-old daughter, too. Uh, we, for two seconds, considered, I did mainly, do you cut it out? Like, what would the movie do if you took all that out? And my 13-year-old daughter got mad at me. So like, why would you? Leslie got mad. Yeah. My yeah. wife got mad. She's like, tell Adam to stop editing. Yeah. <laughs> He's thinking too much. <laughs> so did. if you had, would you have cut the, just a song out or the whole thing with Dobby, the whole beginning? Just, and we, going? We look at everything. I mean, we look yeah. at every permutation of the movie. So, you know, this is our, by far, our most epic, longest movie that we've mm. done. And just at one point, you got to look at it where what happens if we take 15 minutes out of this? And so we did that. We, we did a version that was much, much shorter. That was like 12 minutes shorter. And, uh, it actually didn't play as well. It actually, yeah, wow. felt thin and kind of unrealized. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of counterintuitive. Usually the longer, more epic version is a tougher play, but in this case, it seemed more appropriate. It was kind of how the movie was built. So, mm. uh, And obviously we love the Dolby sequence, so it's my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> it's what Jaws 4 should have been, <laughs> to right. be honest. Um, but it's, I also read somewhere that it might be eligible for the best original song category of the Oscars. Is, is this true? Yeah, it got submitted. Paramount submitted it. It's officially been submitted. This is amazing. There's no way it's getting nominated. <laughs> Oddly, the, the movie Frozen, all their songs that in the Inside Lewin Davis songs uh-huh. all did not make it, and it's just Dobie alone. God, that would be amazing. Well, Dobie could, of course, take out all the competition. Oh, I just, feel like if it yeah. just got nominated and you just got to see Will on the Academy Awards... With screens behind him showing shark footage, singing that song. That'd be it. Like, I don't know if you do anything ever again for the rest of your career at that point. I think I'd become a cabinet maker. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the way to go, I think. Do you keep up with uh, comedy? Do you keep up? Do you watch when you're making a film like this? Or are you very, very much focused on, on the film? You mean, do I watch other movies yeah. too? Judd and I? Oh, I, yeah, you- Judd and I are both huge comedy fans. So I watch everything. Uh, and television as well. And... Yeah, I just, like, This is the End, I thought was really funny last year. And uh, I love that show, American Dad, too. I've been watching a mm. lot. That show really makes me laugh. So, yeah, we're always kind of checking out what's going on. And, you know, and a lot of the people in those movies, like in the case of This is the End, those are all guys that 
Judd started with and mm. discovered and helped get launched and stuff. So we're all kind of loosely in the same community. And Seth was Kenny, no, not Kenny, but Seth was the cameraman in uh, Anchorman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's if you'd watch Seth in Anchorman, just mm. kind of go by two scenes, you realize it's just me trying to get him money for his apartment <laughs> to pay his <laughs> rents at a time when Seth Rogen was not making money. We had, uh, <laughs> we had Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg on the podcast the other week, and uh, Edgar said that Simon lent him 600 pounds when he was really struggling. They couldn't get Shaun of the Dead made, and you know he just lent him some money to tide him over. Um, do those guys just owe you thousands of thousands of dollars now? Do you, did I, you I think, go I think Evan Goldberg actually owes me $10,000. <laughs> I haven't asked him for it because his hard work has probably paid for my children's college education. So I feel it'd be weird to go, remember that summer I lent you ten grand? I want it back. Um, Do you have any proof that he lent you ten grand? We had all sorts of very elaborate systems of funneling money to Seth and Evan because uh, we know Sasha and recommended them uh, to to work on the Ollie G show, but in order for them to get their citizenship and to get paid I would get the checks from Sasha and have to funnel them back to them. It was like very like it was very complicated. Uh, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of embezzlement happening um, to, to make it happen. Well, that's good. You're not admitting to it publicly on a thing that will be broadcast on the internet. Yeah, one one day, one day, yeah, maybe one day you'll see. But do you, in terms of keeping up with comedy, were you guys excited about the say, for example, the Python reunion that's coming up in London soon? Or? Is that something that – are you Python fans? Or? No, I guess the last couple months I have been a little more out of it. I did not hear about that, but I You didn't hear about that? I wow. worship Monty Python. I mean, they're the – my opinion, the greatest sketch group of all time. So, yeah. Uh, and for me as a kid, they were seminal, I'm sure, for Judd as well. Yeah. And uh, no, I didn't know this. What's going on? Uh, they're they're coming back shows. for a, a live show. Ten dates at the O2, the big, big uh, event hall here I, in London. Judd, I literally think we should fly over here and go see it. When is it? July. Might have to do it. Might have to do it. Uh, I mean, they're so funny, and I've, I've you know, met a few of them briefly. Yeah. Uh, Eric Idle is just as riotously funny as ever, and I heard he wrote something to tie it all together. Yeah, he has. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, and it would be great. It would be great if they aggressively uh, wrote some new material with the with the classics. But you know, I think it's funny that they're older because you know the, the joke of a lot of Monty Python sketches was these young guys playing really crusty guys in the bureaucracy. So to do it when they're actually a little bit crusty <laughs> might make it ten times funnier to do, to do the, the, the Office of Silly Walks, you know, when you're not pretending to be older. It will be great. It'll be fantastic. Yeah, fly over for it. Fly, it'll, be, it'll be fantastic. And uh, in terms of list cast, the Anchorman cast... Can you do this again ten years time? Is that the idea? Coming back every ten years until until you guys are crusty and old and I'm crusty so. now. You're not yeah. that crusty. Judd's not quite crusty. You're <laughs> no. getting close, but you're yeah. not. I'll let you know when you're crusty. Okay, please. Yeah. I'll be the one friend you can check in with. And be like, yep, <laughs> you're crusty. Uh, well, that uh, from the first movie on, uh, Judd has always said you can play these guys when they're sixty or seventy. So. Uh, and I think he's right. I think you could actually have these guys come back in their mm. like early 60s, early 70s and do these movies. But, you know, we loved how the second movie happened in the sense that the fans of the movie just kept asking for it. It was like very grassroots sequel in the mm. sense that we wouldn't have done it if people hadn't kept asking us over and over again for six, seven years in a row. So <laughs> I'd love for, you know, if people want a third one, you know, it's possible you put the second one out and it's like, all right. 
that's good. And we all move on. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see what happens. Okay. Judd, Adam, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for this week, and that is it for this year. We'll be back on January 10th with the first regular podcast of the new year as we begin our countdown to our 100th podcast. Ooh. I know. And believe me, we have some very special plans for the most auspicious of occasions, which will probably go massively tits up. Uh, our review of the year will be up on... Let's go for this Monday. Let's go for this Monday, which is the 23rd. Yeah, that's the aim. That's the aim, but uh, maybe the 28th, 29th, <laughs> maybe just... It, it, it depends on a number of factors, uh, yeah. some of which are in my control. Okay. Uh, so we'll see. It, but we'll, it's recorded. It's, it's in the bank. It's in the bank. It's, okay. ready, it's ready to roll, but not ready at all. And it's, uh, it's a bit of a mammoth one, that one. And our first spoiler special of 2014 is likely to be Captain America, the Winter Soldier, when it's out in March. So if Santa brings you a calendar for Christmas and not an AT-AT or Millennium Falcon or some Argyle socks, there are a few dates to enter into it. Until then, all that remains is for us to thank you so much for listening to the show throughout the year and in ever-increasing numbers, we're delighted to say. It means a lot to us. Uh, and until we return in 2014, it's good Goodbye from Helen. Merry Christmas. It's goodbye from uh, Ali. Goodbye. <laughs> Is that how you say Merry Christmas round your way? Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, it's goodbye from Blanca. How do you enjoy it? Uh, it was fantastic. Good. Well I had done. a great time. And I'd just like to say Feliz Navidad to everyone. I told you I don't speak Spanish. And uh, it's goodbye from me. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all. Bye.